Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to our 100th Ag Emerge podcast. It's hard to believe we've recorded 100 episodes with some of the great change makers in agriculture. From scientists and researchers to medical doctors and ag entrepreneurs, we've tried to bring you the full gamut of all things regenerative agriculture. Today is a pinnacle for us as we host Gabe Brown, our first onstage Ag Emerge keynote speaker and one of the influential forces that challenged our thinking about the way we farm. There's a great conversation ahead as Monty and Gabe take a three-hour deep dive into all things Regen Ag. So let's get started. Welcome, everyone. It's a great joy to be joined by a friend of mine, uh, Gabe Brown. He was uh, our very first speaker at our very first Ag Emerge event in Monterey, California. So it's pretty exciting to see him here for our 100th episode. So welcome, Gabe. Thank you, Monty. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Well, we're uh, we're excited to uh, to go through some things. We've decided to do this as an extended version, so we're gonna we're gonna see how that does. I've done a I've done my best, Gabe, here to make a long list of notes. So, <laughs> if we're done by ten p.m., uh, we'll consider the success, right? <laughs> Whatever you say. Whatever you. <laughs> We've say. got him on the line as long as we can. So. Yeah. Anyway, no, I, uh, I I really appreciate everything that you've uh, you've done and shared with farmers and the industry and and now the world. Recently, back from the UK, uh, pretty exciting that uh, you know farmers and consumers, industry are interested in regenerative ag everywhere. And um, so, before we we dive into all that, I, I just would love for you, you know, we've got the dirt to soil book here that you you penned in the background on the studio. But uh, and it tells your story, but not everybody has read that. So um, tell us, tell us your story, uh, how you started farming, you and Shelly, and and just how how you transitioned over time. Well, thank you, Monty. First, uh, I want to say thank you for all you've done with, excuse me, Ag Emerge and and these podcasts. Uh, Wherever I travel, I enjoy listening to them and the wide array of speakers you've had on and bringing education to farmers and ranchers. And I've always said that that's the one thing that's lacking in agriculture today is education. We cannot expect farmers and ranchers to implement what they do not know. And that kind of gets into my story. You know, I was born and raised in town, not from a farm or ranch. I thought that my way into agriculture was by being an ag education teacher. And so that's what I went to college for. Well, as luck would have it, I married my high school sweetheart and and, uh, her parents were from a farm. And they asked us if we'd be interested in moving back to the farm and taking over. And I always joke to people, my wife married a city kid to get off the farm and and I drug her back to it and and uh she still holds that against me today but things <laughs> turned out pretty good 
And I learned to farm from my father-in-law, very conventionally. He was growing spring wheat, oats, and barley, half summer follow, half cash crop, and, you know, intensive tillage. Not real intensive use of inputs, but he did use uh, synthetic fertilizers and some fungicides where necessary. And that's how I learned to farm. But not being from a farm, I was very inquisitive and and I had read and studied about no-till and it just made sense to me. You know, I'm in an environment, we get about 16 inches of total precipitation a year. Of that, about 10 inches comes as rain and six inches from the snow we get. And, and so I could never figure it out. I remember my father-in-law <clears throat> in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the spring of the year, he was he, we'd be out tilling and he'd say, well, Gabe, now we're tilling the soil to dry it out so we can seed. But then come July, here we were praying for rain. That never made much sense to me. So in 1991, we had the good fortune of being able to purchase a part of the farm from them. And in 1994, I went 100% zero till, sold all my tillage equipment. Then I was never tempted to go back and went We've been 100% zero till ever since. First year, we had a bumper wheat crop, and I thought, boy, this is easy. But then 1995 came along. The day before I was going to start combining 1,200 acres of spring wheat, we lost all 1,200 acres to a hailstorm. That was pretty devastating. No hail insurance. My father-in-law had farmed here 35 years and had only had hail a couple of times, and it was minor at that. Well, that was pretty devastating, set us back, not able to pay back the operating note, you know, made interest payments, but that was about it. 1996 came along and we lost 100% of the crop to hail again. Well, by then things are getting pretty tough. Uh, my wife and I took off farm jobs, you know, in order to put food on the table. But I started to notice some changes. I noticed that, man, I was getting earthworms. We had never seen an earthworm on this farm before. You know, I noticed that the ranch itself was coming to life. You know, the birds were coming back and deer were coming onto the property, which we had never seen before. And I just started to notice some subtle changes, but I was just concerned about how do I keep the banker at bay. 1997 came along and as luck would have it, it was a major drought in this area and nobody combined an acre. So there's three years, no income. Now, the bank wasn't going to loan me operating money anymore, but fortunately, they didn't have a mortgage on the, the land. That was on a contract for deed with my in-laws, so I was pretty sure they weren't going to foreclose on me. But, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> we we were able to, though, with our livestock and that, make interest payments and keep things going. 1998 came along, and to make a long story longer, uh, we lost 80% of our crop to hail in a June hailstorm. And I look back and I can smile on that now, but even though those were the the toughest years to go through, they were absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me. Because I tell people the good Lord was really teaching me the six principles of soil health through those years. And, you know, back then it wasn't known as the six principles. And I give Jay Fear and John Sticka and Ray Archuleta credit for for uh, starting to talk about those as principles. I didn't know that back then, but 
but it was a real learning opportunity for me. And I often find in agriculture, when we're faced with diversity, it becomes learning opportunities. That is true. And uh, one other thing I, I want you to include there is your college job. You know, most people uh, in college uh, work in, I worked in food service, uh, and then I helped out on the family farm and, and did some seed corn sales and worked at the Case IH dealership. You know, I was part-time everywhere just to try to pay for college. Uh, you chose just a little bit harder job during college. <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, my actual into production agriculture started when I was in high school. And at our vocational technical center, there was a a uh, note pinned on the bulletin board wanted summer help on a dairy farm. Well, I called this guy and it was a dairy farm about 60 miles from from Bismarck here. And I was the only person that called. And he must have been desperate because he he ended up hiring me to milk cattle on that dairy farm. And I was in heaven. I mean, I went up there for the summer and spent the summer, learned to milk cows and run equipment. And thank goodness he had a lot of patience because I'm sure looking back, it probably wasn't easy taking a city kid and, and teaching him to milk cows. So then I continued that during the summer months I worked for him. But then when I, when I went to college, uh, I actually worked for the dairy barn at the North Dakota state university milking cows morning and night. And didn't bother me one bit, but uh, uh, yeah, a lot of people probably wouldn't have chosen that. But remember, Monty, though, I was married when I was in college, so it wasn't like I was out for the nightlife there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kept you out of trouble, at least. But uh, my, right. my wife has said that there's only two enterprises she won't allow me to do. And uh, one is a restaurant and the second one is a dairy because uh, every day, twice a day, no matter what, uh, yeah. you, you have to make sure the cows are milked. So yeah, there's a lot though to your work ethic. Well, right. well, I just really enjoyed working. And to be honest with you, if my wife, like yours, wouldn't have put her foot down and said no dairy, and I probably would have would have started a dairy farm. I I don't mind that every day and every day, but yeah, the requests we get uh, at our at our market um, direct to consumer business, Grateful Grace for raw milk is just constant. Mm -hmm. So uh, my wife has to remind me on a regular basis about about her her commitment to <laughs> <laughs> let someone else dairy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, adversity teaches us a lot. I I would say you probably some of the observations you made during those hailstorms is you you lost all of your of your grain that you could harvest in the drought and such but you probably had some residues accumulating on the soil that the neighbors weren't getting because they would till it again yeah. what did you and you mentioned the explosion of the earthworms but do you think that was part of of what kind of jump-started your uh no-till system there uh, there's no doubt about that, Monty. And looking back, think of what happened. You get a couple of hailstorms, and I'd already gone no-till. Well, those hailstorms occurred late in the growing season. So the wheat, the oats, the barley, whatever cash crops I was growing, that laid a tremendous amount of biomass down. And it was really close to harvest, so those crops were already uh, maturing. So that biomass laid down and protected the soil surface. 
Well, what was really happening underneath, we were we were holding that moisture in and we were protecting those soil aggregates. And I often say that one of the, if I had to pick one thing for farmers and ranchers to understand, it'd be how is a soil aggregate formed and the importance of that soil aggregate. Our livelihood depends on us building soil aggregates so, so that can allow water to infiltrate, which then allows biology to proliferate and to move throughout the soil profile. And that's what was occurring with those years of hail is we, we had that armor, we were building aggregates and we noticed a real change. I remember my father-in-law, he would love working summer fellow. My father-in-law just loved to till. I mean, that's, that's what he, I'll tell you a little story. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, when I went no-till, it, it was a bit of a angst in him in that uh, he just did not like the look of a no-till field. You know, he liked right. that smooth black field. Yeah. It's called trash then. Remember trash yeah. farming. Yep, that's right. <laughs> well, my father-in-law, when he retired, he sold all of his equipment except a tractor, and he went and bought a new Wishick disc. And he went and dissed for neighbors for free. I wonder if he'd do that today with diesel fuel costs the way they are. But that was his idea of entertainment. And then as the years went by and he saw soil health progress and he saw what yields we were able to get and the profit we were able to make, he, he became a believer. And I'll never forget in 2003, we harvested 200 bushel dryland corn here on our farm. And that's pretty unheard of in Burley County, North Dakota, dry land. And my father-in-law asked my wife to get a camera and take a picture of him and my son, Paul, standing next to that cornfield. So then I knew I finally had him. Unfortunately, a month later, he passed away. And would you believe what did Gabe get in his will? I got that disc in his will. That's what he left me. And I thought I just had to laugh because that was his way of telling me that, well, maybe I'm still not quite a believer, but I sold the disc within a week and and uh, things turned out real well. But it's kind of a funny story. That is but, a funny side story. <laughs> yeah. But getting back to it. Think of my father-in-law with all that tillage, he was constantly destroying those soil aggregates. And as you know, those aggregates will only last about four weeks and we have to build new ones. And I really think that's lacking in agriculture today. We don't understand the importance that those soil aggregates play in our profitability. Right, right. And one other thing to note, just during that story of the four years of, you know, hail and drought and those kind of things, I would say those first two years of the hailstorm on mature crops, not only did you get all that lignified biomass that was really persistent, I would assume it probably grew uh, some of that spring wheat and oats and, and barley. You know, none of those were winter crops, so they winter killed, but you probably had some of that green going on and that was your first cover crop and you just didn't know it. Well, and, and also the fifth principle, living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. So you're absolutely right. You know, we always had a little green up after harvest, but usually just right where the combine tailings uh, fell out. But 
what I started to do after those hailstorms, I needed some feed for the livestock. So it was actually mm -hmm. in 1995 when I when I purchased my first cereal rye and hairy vetch and seeded a little bit of that. You know, I, I seeded at that time, I think I scraped together enough money for about 30 acres worth. But that was my first biennial crop. Well, we've seeded that combination ever since then. So I tell people, I was really learning those principles during those years of, of hail and drought. And you're absolutely right. That living root then in the soil late into the fall, that helped feed biology, obviously, and build those soil aggregates. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, it just when you look back, um, uh, you know, my opinion is God is always working. And are we listening? Are we watching? Are we seeing his design and what it's up to? And, um, you know, look at that foundation basically for your farming career and now, you know, your teaching career. Um, so, so critical. And um, I got, mm -hmm. I just want to take a little segue here on, on the six principles versus the five principles. Uh, you know, I'm just, I just can't keep up with the change. I've stuck with the five <laughs> principles, you know, because mm -hmm. I think context is really a law. <laughs> yeah, well, it should so, be. The first principle, yep. you know, uh, that you and your team have come up with is 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 context. And and I've always thought of that as a law and the, and the principles. So I didn't want to get in trouble with Jay. You know, I haven't I haven't asked him for permission. You know, he's he's a neighbor, so I'm sure you guys have talked. But I've kept it well, that. But when you said the yeah. fifth principle of a living root, I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. That's, that's yeah. cows. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the reason I give Ray Archuleta the credit for for pushing us to to put context as a principle look at it and i'll use myself as an example i tell people this will show how really unintelligent gabe brown is for 20 plus years i calved in february and march in north dakota you can't what, get what any more yeah you can't get any more con out of context than that hey it's fine uh, if you don't want ears on your calves yeah yeah that's <laughs> right they don't need them anyway right it but Wherever I travel, it amazes me how out of context we're getting. You know, I was up in 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 Manning, Alberta, Canada. Okay, I don't know if you know where Manning is, but you fly into Edmonton, you drive for a day, you think you're at the Arctic Circle, and you're in Manning, Alberta. And they're trying to grow soybeans up there. Okay, oh, that's no, just no. so far out. Would that that's be like so far out of context. Negative one? <laughs> yeah, that's about <laughs> it. You know? It's just out of context. I tell people there's a reason bananas don't grow in North Dakota. It's out of context. <laughs> Yet you look due to crop insurance, and I don't know, that's just probably a third hour talk rather than right now. Uh, due to the farm program right now, there's a lot of people farming out of context for that reason. And that has some long-term negative ramifications on soil health. Right. And we have to realize that we have to get more into context if we're truly going to be regenerative. So we'll, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to leave it at a law. <laughs> I, re I really okay. am because that, that is even higher than the principles in my opinion. But, uh, so anyway, okay. we'll just have to make sure when we go five and six that we're not confusing people here. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> so amazing story. And then you started to, 
after this, things started clicking. You went to, like you said, the rye hairy vetch, which evolved into the triticale vetch, which is still one of your most profitable combinations. Mm-hmm. You started uh, doing so many different crops and growing cover crop seed and, and those kind of things. You had the Dwayne Beck principle of uh, your rotation is so confusing that you don't even know what's going on. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, talk about from there and and then how did you start monitoring your soil and and really seeing these? What what got you started into quantifying the changes that are going on on your farm? Yeah, and you know. I'm really blessed, Monty, in that I met a lot of the right people at the right time. You know, Jay Fear was our district NRCS conservationist here in Burley County. And I don't know, I think he felt sorry for me during those four years and took an interest in what I was doing. And and in 1998, uh, I was approached, he approached me asking if I'd be interested in running for the Burley County Soil Conservation District Board of Directors. And I did and and was elected to the board. And I went on a journey then along with Jay because Jay has an insatiable appetite for learning also. Mm-hmm. And so he would bounce ideas off me and me off him. And he started me down the path of, well, Gabe, we need to we need to do some water infiltration tests and some, you know, soil tests and really quantify what you're doing with science. And so I give Jay the credit for starting me down that path because I'm one, I just do things. I don't want, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time like with those the, details, right? You know, yeah. Just, yeah. Just do all it. I care, all I cared about. And I tell people, well, when, when you're as broke as I was, it was all about, okay, how do I, how do I pay the next bill and, and pay the banker? And, you know, fortunately by focusing on soil health, we were able to become very profitable very quickly. And, and that really uh, made things a lot easier. You know, there's, there's, uh, it's good for the family life and good for the, uh, good for the association with the banker when things are profitable. So (laughs) yeah, bankers only give you money when you don't need it. Right. Right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the slides that you share a lot in your in your presentations is that that change in organic matter over time based on mm-hmm. the practices that you implemented. Yeah. And um, you know, for some reason I'd been under a rock or we had uh, missed each other because I'd gone to a lot of no-till conferences and those kind of things. And I didn't meet you in person until 2016. You know, I I yeah. knew of you and and those kind of things. And you know, I saw that slide. I'm like, wait a minute, how's this guy getting to eleven percent organic matter? in Bismarck, North Dakota. I mean, there's like a 90 day growing season. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, you do have the advantage of good light quality that doesn't burn it out of your soil, right? Uh, You don't have high temperatures that can volatilize carbon, but still, I mean, how do you do that? And you showed every one of those practices that you added, you know, Mm -hmm. diversity of the cover crops, uh, seasonal diversity of the cover crops. And then the thing that stood out in my mind is, you were kind of at that six or seven percent plateau, which is still twice as good as anything in the corn belt. Uh, then you jumped to eleven when you integrated the livestock yep. back onto the yeah. land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, just just walk us through that journey. Yeah. I think that's yeah, important. yeah. When we purchased 
this farm from my in-laws in 1991, organic matter levels on the cropland was 1.7 to 1.9%. And it was really constant at that. And ironically, uh, since that time and in, in the past uh, three, four years, we've done, a, I've had a number of researchers come and they've tested neighbors fields also. And they were at about the same, less than 2%, one and a half to 2%. So what that tells us in, in our area here, South Central North Dakota, that's about where things kind of stabilize off. Now, I'm sure if you tried really hard, you could degrade it even further. But historically speaking, though, soil scientists tell me that this area of North Dakota was probably in the 7 to 8% range, okay, when it was native grasslands. So in other words, Monty, 75% of the carbon that was once in this, our soils is now in the atmosphere. It's gone. Yep. But then we've stabilized. So I had it at that. We had that baseline. Fortunately, I took some soil tests there when we first purchased the, the farm. So I know that was our baseline. Then what we saw is as we went no-till, we had a small increase. And a lot of people think, well, if I go no-till, you know, that's it. Well, that was just one small blip up. What really uh, caused that to jump even further was what you talked about earlier. When we started to put in those fall seeded biennials, when we started to have a living root in the ground much longer, because as you know, approximately two thirds of your organic matter increase will come from that dying decaying root biomass mm -hmm. and the biology the biology itself, that cycle. So we had to start building that aggregate. So we started to integrate cover crops, noticed an increase. Then after 2006, when I heard Dr. Adamir Caligari speak, uh, he talked about the multi-species covers. And at, before then, people thought I was crazy when I was planting three-way mixes. Well, Dr. Caligari was talking about these 10 to 15-way mixes I'll never forget, Jay Fear was in that room when we were listening to Dr. Caligari. And when he said that, I turned and looked at Jay and he looked at me. We knew immediately that was one of the missing links. And we, you know, I come home from that. That conference takes place in January. I came home that spring. I was planting diverse polycultures in the soil district. We were doing the same on our test plots. That was a significant rise in soil health. Not only soil health, but also in the insect diversity and the wildlife, the, the songbirds, et cetera, on our ranch. When we started planting those diverse covers, that was a big step up. Then another thing that happened that, that same year, I had met during a conference that winter in Canada, I'd met Neil Dennis. And Neil invited me up to his place in Wawota, Saskatchewan. And Neil had taken cropland and let it let it go back. Like myself, Neil was pretty broke at one time. And he let his cropland convert back to, to perennial species naturally. But he was using high-density grazing. And up till that time, I was grazing at maybe 50,000 pounds live weight per acre. Well, Neil was pushing upwards of a million pounds per acre. And, and, and I look to be fair though, 50,000 pounds in your neighborhood is high. Yeah, very high. I Average mean, it would be what thousand, 
No, average in the U.S. is less than 300. Right. But so, I mean, in your yep. neighborhood, would they be grazing a cow per acre or probably less on that? No, no, much less. About a cow per 10 acres. Wow. So, yeah, it's much, much less. You were already crazy. And then you see yeah. a million pounds per acre. And... and I looked at those soils with Neil up there. And I will never forget, I was driving home and I just come through uh, the border security and it hit me. It was just like, Gabe, that's the missing link on cropland. Okay. I can understand what Neil was doing on perennial pastures, but I needed to get that kind of stock density onto cropland to really ratchet up cropland. So I came home and we had some diverse covers growing and I told Paul, my son, I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to graze high stock densities on cover crops on cropland. That's where the big jump occurred then to organic matter. Now, now to clear things up, I don't want any misconception. I don't have 11% organic matter on all my soils. Okay. Uh, seven to 8% is very common. And some that I have not been farming as long or less than that, down in that 5% range, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Right. You're either, you're doing one of two things. You're adding carbon to the soil or it's being removed from the soil. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a, it's not a static thing. It depends yeah. on your farming practices. It's just a reflection of, of your practices. Exactly. And carbon is a cycle. Mm -hmm. And I tell people one of the, the real uh, monetary benefits is I've been able to use some of that carbon. Jay Fear always talks about reap your reward. You know, if you invest in soil health and build soil health, well, you should be able to reap that reward. So since 2007, I have not added a single pound of any nutrients, whether synthetic or uh, um, organic, except for what falls out of the back end of an animal. And so I'm reaping that reward. I'm, you know, I think my carbon levels would be even higher if I wasn't using that up. But but why not? Why not, you know, reap some of that reward? Well, and if seven is six to seven is the normal context, right? Really, 11's out of context. You know, it's it's yeah. greater than what the, the natural state was. So, I mean. Gosh, if you're able to maintain that, uh, yep. why, why more, right? And yeah. the other thing is it's not happening just because you're planting corn and soybeans or because you're planting wheat and wheat and wheat and wheat and wheat, right? Yeah. So you yeah. got to look at a little bit of that. Let's let's talk about the the modern farm today that, you know, Paul's uh, primarily in, in charge mm -hmm. of, and then you're just around there to cause chaos, I assume, like like yeah. my dad is for me. You know, that, <laughs> that's great. Uh, <laughs> the uh, keeps me in check, right? Um, yeah. The... Uh, how many cropland acres, how many rangeland acres, crops mm -hmm. you grow, uh, kind yeah. of the mixture of those crops and, and your cattle herd and, and other species, just, just walk everybody through that. Yeah, sure. So the ranch today is approximately 6,000 acres of owned and leased land. We lease uh, about three-fourths of that, um, own a part of it. At one time, I had 2,000 acres of that was cropland, and then the rest was either quote unquote native rangeland or cropland that was seeded back, expired CRP, et cetera, that we lease from other individuals. Now today we have seeded quite a bit of the cropland back to perennials and Paul's farming about 750 cropland acres. 
And those cropland acres are comprised of a wide array of different crops. Um, I do the majority of the farming and just because I'll be honest and I know this is going to rub some people wrong, but I, I find farming kind of not challenging and a bit boring. And so I like to do things that are a bit out of the norm. For instance, I've developed a winter barley variety that'll overwinter in North Dakota. They told me, no, can't be done. Well, I thought, why? Why can't it be done? It just took me some time, but I have that now. Uh, I've been developing an open pollinated corn variety that will will thrive in our short growing season. Uh, that's been put on hold the last two years with our severe drought, but I've been developing that. Uh, we grow polyculture cash crops. For instance, one of the mixes we grow is oats, barley, uh, spring peas, and flax. We seed that together, combine that together, and that goes into the hog and poultry rations. That can also be used as a cover crop seed. It, it works great. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, our most profitable cash crop year in and year out is a combination of cereal rye, winter triticale, forage winter wheat, the winter barley I developed, and hairy vetch. We mix that together, seed it together in the fall, and then combine it the next July. And we've developed a very good market for that with the ranchers who use it either for grazing or haying. Uh, so besides that, um, involved in a project now growing perennial wheat, and this is not Kernza, it is a true perennial wheat that was developed by Dr. Stephen Jones at the Bread Lab in Washington State. We're excited about that project. Uh, we can talk about that later on. So we have some of that growing here. We also have a number of other spring wheat varieties that Dr. Jones developed growing here. We do also grow some oats, barley, different cash crops. Uh, I have not grown sunflowers in a while now. They used to be in the rotation, but got a little tired of the combine fires. So <laughs> stop growing them. <laughs> yeah. Plus they're a little, they're a little tough on the residue they leave behind too. That's right. So they're That's not right. very good for that, but uh, yeah. they, they do have an interesting root system for penetration. There's a, there's a place for them, you know, oh, yeah. but, uh, yep. and the cattle like them too, in a grazing mix for uh, winter. Uh, it's amazing. They, they eat the leaves and they kind of avoid it during the summer. Boy, it winter kills and they, they run into a paddock. It's the first thing they eat. Yep. Yep. Like so we, we have a wide variety of different livestock and I give our son, Paul, all the credit for that. Uh, he runs about 250 cow calf pairs, grass finishes, all of those uh, offspring from that. He farrows hogs and will feed out about three to 400 head of pastured hogs per year. He has 1,200 uh, 1, land hens out on pasture during the summer. They're in a hoop house during the winter. Also has a flock of sheep and grass finishes those lambs. Uh, he produces honey. We have an agreement with a local apiary that brings bees on and then we're able to purchase the honey back that's produced in those hives on our land. And he markets that and he's direct marketing all of those products. So how, when you were starting that and Paul was still in school, you were, were you doing direct marketing of beef yourself no no i or was not all um wholesale yeah back then i was selling a small amount of 
beef. And I tell people I was in the registered cattle business for 25 years. I had a bull sale every year and was successful at it. But we were raising grass finished beef for our family to consume. And when Paul was in college, him and I talked and I said, Paul, this just isn't right. It was gnawing at me. I couldn't do it anymore. I says, we know the health benefits of, of grass finished proteins. And I said, I think we need to make a change. And Paul was all for that because I'll never forget one night I was combining uh, late and talking to Paul. He was away at the university and he says, you know, dad, you've been preaching diversity for years, yet all you have is beef cattle. Well, when I come back, I'm going to get some pigs and some sheep and maybe some chickens. What could I say? I said, you want to go for it. And I give Paul all the credit for the direct marketing business because when he come home the first summer, he bought 150 laying hens and started selling hot eggs out of the back of his pickup, you know, illegally because they weren't uh, inspected. But uh, that business has grown into a direct marketing business that's uh, uh, really doing well for him. Right. And the name of that business is Nourished by Nature. You really should check it out, uh, Paul and 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 now his wife uh, are doing a stellar job yeah. there. Uh, kind of kind of funny. Not story. not married yet, Marty. Oh, not but, married but yet. Oh, not married yet, but engaged. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So yeah, that's, Jasmine, uh, yep. Jasmine, this is the uh, North Dakota dating program. You have to have a regenerative farm that invites interns for the summer. Yeah. See, that's, that's how they met. Was working yeah. on the farm. So, yeah, that's that's. <laughs> we'll have to have him on exactly. and tell his story sometime. That'd be great. <laughs> so. I mean, big diverse story and, and, and all those things. So how did, what was it like to, to write the book, the, the Dirt to Soil book? How, how did you, how did you just magically say, you know, I need to write a book? How did that come about? And, and what was it like that experience doing it? Well, okay. I'll tell a story that doesn't often get told about that book. So I had had a number of publishers ask me, inquire if I'd be interested in writing a book. And I said, no, no, no. I just had no interest. And I didn't want to slow down enough. And, you know, I have a very short attention span and I couldn't picture myself writing a book. But then Chelsea Green reached out to me and they said, well, what if, Gabe, we would pay you in advance and you hire a ghostwriter to help you write this book? And I thought, well, maybe that... So I had my idea of who I should get to write the book. They had theirs. They won out. And so they gave me an advance. I made an agreement with the, with this individual to co-write the book with me. He came and spent a week on the ranch. And I had known him before. So it wasn't like it was somebody who wasn't familiar with me or I with him Spent a week. Well, anyway, when you sign an agreement with a publishing company, you have deadlines to make. And well, the first deadline, I was supposed to have a rough copy and came and went and he hadn't gotten anything to me. And I had paid him. This is, here's a lesson for everybody. You know, the agreement was I'd pay him half up front and half when he delivered the final copy. Well, he gave me a little song and dance about his kids in college and he needed some money and they had paid me the entire advance. And I take people at their word. So I said, I'll help you out and paid him for it. Well, I got a hold of him when he didn't make that first deadline. And I said, where is it? Well, I decided I want more money, he said. <laughs> well, 
you don't say that to Gabe Brown when you give Gabe your word. So we had a little come to Jesus talk and he said, okay, I'll get it to you. A couple of weeks later, he emails me this discombobulated mumbo jumbo bunch of chapters that made no sense, which I proceeded to forward to my editor. And I said, okay, what do I do with this? The response I got back was, oh my. So anyway, it was a mess. I had six weeks to my final deadline. And by that time, I was already into my fall speaking circuit schedule, which I'm on the road more than a little bit. So I actually wrote that book in a six-week time frame from 10 at night to four in the morning while I was traveling speaking. And I give a lot of credit to my editor. She really <laughs> helped see me through that and and help put it together. But it forced me, though. And sometimes with Gabe, you got to force. Uh, I can procrastinate on things. You got to force me to do things. So, so you know, it, it was just my story. Now, interestingly enough, there was parts of that story that were left out. One of the things I would have really liked to have gotten into is I tell people at the end of 1998, our fourth year of crop failure, I was 1.5 million in debt. For a young family, that's a lot of money in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Well, we were per fairly quickly able to dig out from that debt, but it was due to regenerative agriculture and due to the stacking of enterprises and those things that allowed us to, um, to crawl out of that hole. Now I'll put a little plug in here. So my business partners, Kathy Richberg, Dr. Alan Williams, and Shane New and myself are actually writing another book, which we hope to have out by next fall. So that will kind of expand on this and expand on the need for regenerative agriculture. Well, good, good. Still doing the 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift to write it. That's that's probably <laughs> what inspired it so much. <laughs> yeah, that that it was a good thing because it it forced me to apply myself and to to hammer through it. You know, things have changed in there as as you know that talks about the five principles, and now we have the law. I'm gonna quote Monty Botton's "The Law" now of context <laughs> on there. So things have changed, and you know, uh, one of the real joys of regenerative agriculture is that. It's a continual learning process. So, you know, that book came out in 2018, uh, four plus years ago, and uh, a lot of things we've learned a lot since then. So there needs to be another one. Absolutely. No, that's that's uh, that's pretty fascinating. So how well how well was it received? What's the feedback you've gotten from that book? Well, I kind of hate to say it, but. Number one selling agriculture book on Amazon for 26 straight months. Awesome. I believe we're now published in 11 different languages uh, you worldwide. Have, you didn't have to write that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been good. But uh, Chelsea Green has done a very good job of promoting this uh, across the world. And it amazes me. We were in the UK, as you mentioned. Uh, my partners and I just last month, and um, I literally sat at one place for two and a half hours straight signing books. It it just amazes me, the interest in it, because all it is is my story. 
But I think what it does, and the reason I wrote it is I just wanted to give people hope. You know, there's another way of doing things. We don't have to be that hamster on that treadmill. We can, you know, forge our own path, so to speak, and do what we enjoy and make money at it. Mm -hmm. I agree. So that is fantastic. And I, I've I've run into several people who've read it or reread it multiple times. And um, it, it's, it's certainly made a change to them. And, you know, that's exciting. I'm, I'm glad that you did that. I'm glad you shared your story. And that's why I've spent so much time, you know, here at first diving into your story, because it, it tells you a little bit about what's going on, but, you know, how, and a little bit of how you do it. But um, I want to dive into more of the why. Why do you do this? It's not easy. It's, it's, mm -hmm. you have to look far and wide for answers. You have to work extra hard. You have to build equipment. You have to think. You have to fail a lot. Mm -hmm. Why, Gabe? Why why are you doing all this? I, I know it's not I mean the speaking engagements, I'm sure it, you know, hey, you you weren't doing it to write a book. You weren't doing it to, you know, no. teach people or speak to people. Well yep. what's at the core. Yep. At the core, it's simply the fact that when Shelly and I went through this, we had no one to turn to. You know, I couldn't talk to her father about it because he would say, well, go till it up, you know. Told you so. <laughs> yeah. And there was no one around here doing it. Now, now later, as I mentioned, uh, Jay Fear and I became good friends and that helped. But I think in order to be successful in agriculture today, you have to have a community around you. You have to have other like-minded individuals that you can lean on and bounce ideas off of. Back then, I had no, and I made a promise to God that I was going to do what I could to help others, because I saw the difference that regenerative agriculture implementing these principles made, not only ecologically on our farm and ranch, but financially, and also, you know, quite frankly, how it strengthened our family, you know, and I wanted to others to share in that. So I just made a promise that I would always try and help others and do that. And that's kind of my why and my partners at Understanding Ag, it's all of our why. We, we don't do it to get rich. We do it because it's a community and helping others. You know, I often get asked, well, do your neighbors all do this? No, they, they've adopted no-till and some of the practices, but nothing to the extent we are. Well, why not? I said, because it doesn't fit their context, you know, but there are thousands of others out there. I can literally pick up the phone and, you know, I can call my buddy Bonnie in Illinois and talk to him or whatever the case may be. You know, one of the true joys of regenerative agriculture is that those who are practicing it are more than willing to share. And it's so different than the conventional quote unquote mindset. And that's a real joy. It makes it makes a person feel alive and wanted. And it's a big help. As you said, this isn't easy. It takes a lot of observation and a lot of trial and error. You know, we often say regenerative agriculture is a thinking person's game. You have to be able to observe and think. 
And I agree with you hundred percent about the community of people supporting each other. You get to know each other and social media has really helped that too. And YouTube and those kind of things. But it's amazing. You know, if you look at the variety within a regenerative farming operation, how much it can vary from place to place and, and, mm -hmm. and what people are trying to accomplish. It, it's so, so diverse, if you will, uh, from farmer to farmer. But then you look, and yet we're willing to share and learn from each other, and it, it's basically wide open sharing. Then you look at the conventional farming paradigm. Everybody's doing practically the same thing. I mean, <laughs> the, the yeah. variation is extraordinarily yeah. minimal, and you can see it, you know, what yeah. they're doing from the road. It's it's no surprise what yeah. people are doing, yet it is so um, isolated. And, and yep. so I ain't going to tell you what to do. And then everybody lies about their yields, lies about their performance, you know, because they, you know, have to have to get better all the time. I, I know uh, a person one time I met him at harvest and was riding with him in his combine. He was getting 180 bushels. I saw him at a meeting a month later. Oh, the field averaged 200. And then another month, the field <laughs> averaged 220. And before planting season, it was up to 240. It was just amazing <laughs> how, how you know, the yield increase happens. But it's, it's, uh, there's a different, Mm -hmm. um orientation yeah. oh what the right word is gabe but uh yeah, yeah all the conventional guys are doing the same thing but they don't want to share all the regenerative yeah. guys are doing wildly different things that are more than willing to share yeah exactly you know i remember going through those four years ironically i had one neighbor that got hit three of those years but but they were a large enough farmer it didn't it didn't the hailstorms didn't take all of their crop and i had several neighbors that got hit two of the four years, but I was the only one with four years. And I just remember my neighbors, not once did any of them offer to help or anything. All they could think of was good. Here's some land we may be able to buy. You know, well, not from this stubborn guy you're not. There's no way that was going to happen. And they, you know, I kind of approach it today, Monty, that people laugh at me because I'm different. I laugh at them because they're all the same. You know, I don't, I have no desire to produce commodities that everybody else is producing and then having to take a price that's set by somebody else. Mm -hmm. I have no desire to do that. That's that's not a way to get ahead. I tell people, Gabe Brown is a capitalist and I'm not going to apologize for that. You know, I'm going to do my homework. You know, one of the reasons I went into the pastured protein business is what other industry has increased greater than 20% for 20 plus consecutive years. That's something I want to be a part of. That's, that's a real trend, you know, why not take advantage of things like that? Meanwhile, you look at commodity prices, they're going the other direction. So I got to ask you, um, Shelly, what, what's she thought about all this, this journey? What's, what's kind of her, her take on yeah. things? Yeah. She still holds it against me that that uh, I brought her back to the farm, but <laughs> you know it hasn't phased her one bit. I tell people I married an angel because for her to put up with me and what we went through, and for her to put up with the two thousand twenty five hundred people we get through the yard every summer, uh, that takes a special person. But I think finally now, uh, uh, as we speak, we're building, I'm building her the house she's always wanted. And so I think when when she moves into that house, she'll she'll realize that, uh, okay, 
They, 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 he didn't do too bad. Well, that's great. <laughs> Glad to hear you're doing that. And uh, how many years you've been married? And and they say yeah. this is the ultimate test of a marriage is building a house. Yeah, yeah. So in May it'll be 42 years. Wow. So yeah. hopefully you get to 43. I'm just. just yeah. <laughs> I'm not too worried about it. I'm okay. Not too worried about it. <laughs> so no, that's um, that that's great. And you know, some things I, another question I had here for you is who are some of the people that inspired you? You mentioned a lot about, about Jay and also your, your yeah. friend in Canada. Who are some of yeah. the other people that have kind of, that got you started, inspired yeah. you to look up to? Yeah, there's so many. Thanks for asking. I would have to say, you know, Jay Fear, Neil Dennis, Dr. Dwayne Beck, of course, you know, the godfather of no-till in, in North America was one. Dr. Chris Nichols, Dr. Chris Nichols first came to the ARS station, Mandan, North Dakota, early 2000s. And I remember 2004, she come out to my place here and she said, Gabe, you've advanced your soils well, but you'll never truly regenerate these soils until you back off on synthetic inputs. And that was a challenge to me. And she explained how biology and the nutrient cycle work. So I did trials then for the next four years, backing off inputs found out that I really don't need to add those inputs. So Dr. Nichols, of course, uh, Jill Clapperton was uh, mm -hmm. uh, inspired me as far as soil microbiology. And there's a myriad of farmers and ranchers. Of course, I have to mention David Brant in Ohio, good mm -hmm. friend of mine, Ray Archuleta, uh, became, him and I became good friends, Ray, the soil guy, you know, I learn every day though. And now I have the good fortune. I travel extensively and I learned from every farm and ranch I'm on, and it's a lot of fun. I'm yeah. sure I forgot some there, Monty, but well, don't hold it against him, okay, folks. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, that's that's a key, and and I I think another person to throw in the mix there is Alan Savory too. Uh, oh yeah, what he's done, you know, globally has had quite a quite an impact. Uh, yep. But uh, yeah, I mean, when you were doing this, uh, it wasn't cool, right? Uh, today, yeah. today it's cool. So. Yeah. I think no. that's that's the neat part is, uh, you know, being that uh, 20, 30 years ahead of the curve. Yeah. So how did you make this transition to becoming a speaker? I mean, it's not like you didn't have enough going on on the farm. Uh, was it just your way to get away from those, uh, you know, uh, terrible yeah. North Dakota winters? Or I'm sure there was a little more than that. How, how did that yeah. how did that get started? Well, I I've always had a big mouth and <laughs> took took part in in public speaking and FFA uh, uh, involved in FFA leadership. So that gave me some experience in public speaking, but it was really Jay fear who by bringing others to my ranch and, and having me explain to them. And then I started getting invited uh, to speak at various soil districts and that, that really propelled me into speaking where now today I'm on the road, 280 plus days a year, you know, I was the reason COVID spread so much, I think, because I was on 500 flights the two years of COVID there. And, you know, so I was one of those super spreaders. But, you know, <laughs> so be it. <laughs> well, you were you were super spreading knowledge. We'll, we'll put it that way. So, you know, you've had a chance to, to travel all over the world now and impact a lot of people. A tremendous amount of following on YouTube and, and all the podcasts and now with the webinars and such that you and your team at Understanding Ag do. Uh, it, yeah, it's quite an impact. And 
one of the things I think is fun is every time you do go to these events and, and get to meet other people is, uh, you know, when you came to Aggie Merge, uh, you were there not only to speak, you stayed the whole conference, you attended everything, wow. you were there to learn. Wow. And one of the fun people that you met at Aggie Merge was Dr. James White. Yeah. You know? And I was just going to where that's gone from there. I was just going to say that, Monty. I give you credit because I had not heard of Dr. White. And I'll never forget, I listened to him. I walked out of that room when he was done speaking. I immediately called Shane and Alan. And I said, hey, there's a guy. You got to hear this guy. This is phenomenal. And uh, to your credit, I believe that was the first ag conference Dr. White had spoken at. And right. I'm like, how did we not know about this guy? And that has been just uh, uh, taking soil microbiology to another level now that interaction between plants and biology i mean it's just fantastic yeah the it, work that he's doing mind-blowing and that was one of the things we hope to do here with ag emerge is find those people that are doing unique work that just don't mm -hmm. have that platform or that voice mm -hmm. or, or those technologies that just you know to mm -hmm. that can benefit regenerative agriculture and, and bring it into the discussion so no, it, it was a lot of fun. And I just, I was standing next to you when he gives me a breakout session and, and uh, you were, you leaned over at the table and your mouth about hit the, yeah. floor, talking about the rise of phagy cycle and, yeah. and, and it, yeah, it was uh, yeah. those aha moments. And, and I encourage anybody listening, you need to get out and be with people and COVID yeah. kind of changed that we do these zoom things more now and that kind of stuff. But it's that I learned more at a conference after the conference or on the breaks, don't you? I mean, oh, it's interacting that, with people and that's how you expand your knowledge. Yeah. And as we talked about earlier, the the willingness to share, you know, those breaks and, and after hours, they uh, they turn into real learning opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So don't don't be afraid. Get out there. Get back on the road and visit with people. So um we're going to take a short break now and we're going to be back with some more questions with Gabe Brown. Thank you so much for everything so far. And uh, we'll be back here in just a little bit. The Aggie Merge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. Well, welcome back, folks. This is exciting to have uh, Gabe here for an extended version of our 100th episode podcast. Um, it, it's exciting. We've had a great time just learning some new things about your story and and what kind of got you to where you are. So I want to just take a pause. We'd ask some people to submit questions uh, to the podcast. So they, they vary wildly, of course. And these questions are going to be great. I'm sure springboards will we'll chase rabbits down trails long ways. You know how we how we can be. But uh, from from basic to technical to big picture, we, we've got a little bit of everything, and um, we're just going to dive right in. Um, uh, first person was saying more from the context of a of a beginner for the, the people who are considering getting into a more regenerative approach to their farming practices. What do you think? Um, they ask here from from your perspective. What are some of the easiest practices to implement that have a largest uh, positive impact? Oh, great question. And the first one is 
you know, realize context. I understand. And we have a lot of clients who are organic producers and they're going to do some tillage. But we have to reduce, preferably eliminate those tillage passes. Tillage just destroys the pore spaces, you know, uh, tears apart mycorrhizal fungi, collapses soil structure so that water can't infiltrate. And so that would be number one for me, minimizing, preferably reducing tillage. And then number two would be focus on the soil aggregate. You have to build aggregates. And that aggregation is key for so many things. And aggregation comes from organic glues that come from plant root exudates. So the more plant root exudates we can have, the better, whether that's in the cash crop selection or a living root every time, every moment that we can have a living root, right? That's right. We, that's we can building those aggregates. We could spend a whole podcast on how to build a soil aggregate and the importance of those soil aggregates here. You're absolutely right. Most producers do not understand that, that their soil is a subaquatic ecosystem. Biology lives in and on thin films of water in the pore spaces between those aggregates. And an aggregate will only last, as I said, approximately four weeks. No aggregates, you're not going to have the pore spaces, no pore spaces, no water infiltration, no nutrient cycling. It's really that simple. Yep. And the tillage portion, you know, the first thing you said, um, it don't have to be a cold turkey approach if you're in a, a crop that's, you know, tillage sensitive, let's say cotton or, uh, you know, produce crops that, that are more tillage sensitive because they're seedbed. But we can certainly consider why are we doing broadcast tillage? Why, why don't we do strip till or narrowly focused mm -hmm. tillage events as the soil aggregates begin to improve, right? So if you're going yeah. from like Arizona, you know, 26 time tillage event per year field, to go cold turkey no-till in produce, that could be a hot mess. But, you know, zone tillage, strip till, minimum tillage, anything, just less, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let me give an example. A good friend of mine, Brandon Rocky, Rocky Farms, Potato Farms, San Luis Valley of Colorado. Brandon uh, grows potatoes every year, grows potatoes. Now, not on the same field. But he was in a potato malting barley rotation, and he switched to a potato cover crop rotation, made his fields a little smaller. So the cover crops, potatoes are closer together, gets the, the predator insects uh, living in the cover crop, also growing some covers with his potatoes, much higher profitability. He's reduced significantly the amount of fertility needed on the potatoes, reduced and eliminated pretty much the pesticides and fungicides needed on his potatoes. His profitability has increased. Does Brendan still use tillage? Of course, it's a potato operation. Right. But he's building soil aggregates in those off years, no tilling the cover crops. And then he's bringing the neighbor's livestock on to graze those covers, implementing the principles within his context. Right. Because that's a crop that still requires intensive disturbance for harvest. Correct. But do we have to have as much intensive disturbance on those crops for the establishment and the weed control and those kind of things? Probably not. And he's done a great job of that. And like you said, rather than having constant fungicides and constant insecticides on there, creating those cover crops and strips is basically beneficial habitat 
mm-hmm. is, is a good way to look at things too. And right. I see a lot of hope for orchards in that too. We've, we've oh. seen that in California where we've worked that we greatly improve uh, predatory mites in the um, in the cover crops that then reduce our need to apply insecticides, miticides. We've also seen a difference in humidity within the canopy, changes the fungicidal need. So, and, and also if, how that works. Yeah, and also if I may, Monty, in those situations, lower water use requirements. We're able to by having that living cover by not tilling in between those tree rows by growing either annual covers or perennial preferably covers, we're able to lower water use requirements. And we all know how important that is becoming. Yeah, they're not making more of it, are they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so next question was, what would a plan look like transitioning from truly conventional practices toward a solid uh, soil health mm-hmm. first approach? Oh, that's a great question. And we get this one often because of the large number of clients we're working on. What understanding ag has become very good at is taking people within their context. We're not going to come to your operation and your farm and tell you, oh, you need to sell all your tillage equipment and buy all this expensive no-till equipment. No, we will take you where you're at. And then incrementally, the first thing we do is proper soil testing. We have a suite of soil tests and observations that we take to determine where your soils are at. And then we work from there. Okay, how do we enhance the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, so that you can minimize these inputs while increasing profitability, okay? Uh, We focus on profitability first, which is a novel idea to many. Many focus on yield. And just because you have high yield doesn't mean you're profitable. Mm -hmm. And so... I will take profit over yield any day. We need That's to, where we start. Someone needs to invent a profit monitor. Yeah. You know, where every, it's sitting there in the harvester and, and it just spits out the profit instead of the bushels per acre, right? Because well, well, that, know, it's so yeah. hard to quantify profit. That's why guys focus on yield. Yeah. And, you know, they have all these yield contests and award winners for yield. I'll tell a brief story. So years ago, we had uh, the grand champion corn grower, a yield winner, came to Bismarck, North Dakota, and I went and listened to him. And I'll never forget at that time, this is quite a few years ago, he was talking about his yield. And at that time, corn was selling for about three twenty-five a bushel. So when it was all done, Q&A, I stood up and I asked him, okay, what was your cost per bushel to produce that record yield? And he said, well, just about $7. And I'll never forget, you know me, my big mouth. I spoke into the mic. Well, I have no desire to learn how to lose money. And I turned and walked out, you know, and the place erupted laughing. But (laughs) what good are high yields if we're not making a profit at it and not doing what's right for the ecosystem? And I think if you look at, you know, in my particular context of corn, soybeans here in the Corn Belt, um, I think that those last... 20 bushels that we're getting uh we're paying a lot of money to get those last 20 mm-hmm. and i think you really need to look at why are we trading dollar for dollar to get those last 20 even at six and seven dollar corn prices uh well, that doesn't make sense and and yeah. what we're doing to get that extra 20 bushels with 
resource pollution, you know, runoff of dry fertilizers, uh, you know, soil erosion, wind erosion, those kind of things. Uh, we're spending a lot, uh, not only in the check today to get that 20, but we're spending a lot of our future to do it. Exactly, Monty. Life lesson learned from my son. Again, I, I was combining corn late one evening and talking to my son on the phone. He was away at the university and I was complaining a little bit about the yield I was getting on this corn. This was back in 2009. And I'll never forget, Paul said to me, Dad, you're trying to outproduce our environment. Wow. That that was like a slap alongside the head to me. I will never forget that because he was exactly right. In my context, you know, Monty's law of context, we can only get so much sunlight, so much growing degree days. And if we push that envelope, what are we also doing that? You know, it goes back to soil is one part nitrogen, 11 parts carbon. If we're pushing these yields, we're robbing from that carbon, right? We're robbing our nutrient bank. How long is that going to be sustainable for? Not very. Ever since that year, I have never, ever questioned what my yield is, or really it doesn't matter because whatever my soils can sustainably produce that year, that's what I'm going to get. But if I do it that way, I'm always going to make a profit at it. That's true. That's true. The follow-on question here was, what sort of time thing is realistic to see results of regenerative agriculture? Yeah, and this is one of the great joys of being a regenerative consultant is we can see when people have that aha moment. And we will notice, our clients will notice some results by the end of the first growing season. Certainly, though, what we tell people is you're going to notice some major differences by the end of year three. Now, we are very good at increasing profitability from the onset with most of our clients. Most, not all, but most. But it takes a few years for that biology to proliferate and kick in and for you to build the aggregates and, and get the ecosystem humming along where it's really noticeable, but that there's no greater joy than uh, uh, seeing the change in a client's face and they really begin to comprehend and understand. And, would, and quote, go ahead. No, I would say like you're right there. That's when you really know it's going to happen is yep. even before they start to plant, you can tell it by if their thinking changed. Exactly. Speaking of thinking, Monty, I'd be remiss to not bring this up in that, you know, right now there's quite a bit of money being thrown out there by uh, federal government, other agencies, organizations to move us down the regenerative path. This is all going to be for naught if it does not include an educational component. And I give a lot of credit to NRCS, a lot of great people working there who are trying hard. But you look at the amount of dollars NRCS has spent over the past 70 plus years, okay, dangling that carrot in front of farmers, getting them to plant covers, go no-till, do these practices. And what's the adoption rate of those? Pretty much less than 10%, right? See, we lack the education component. It's and, really did it for the wrong reason, right? Chasing right. the dollars, not not 
chasing a change. Yeah, we have to educate people. That's why we named our firm Understanding Ag. You know, we need to understand mm -hmm. how ecosystems function. Once we understand, this becomes a lot easier. Correct, correct. So next, the follow-up then is how is success measured? Yeah. And, you know, I really believe that that depends on each individual. That's correct. Okay. In Gabe Brown's world, even though I'm a capitalist and like money, success in my world is measured by the fact that our son has now taken over the farm or ranch. Success is measured in that I have neighbors and people coming to me, Gabe, would you rent our land? We want it to look like yours. Now, rarely do we take on more, more land. We're big enough the way it is, but that to me is success. Success is when you know others see that there's real benefit in going down this path. Well, you just mentioned Paul there a little bit, but that was the next question that a person had was, how have these practices directly impacted your family? Yeah, and I will say this, uh, going from 1.5 million in debt to now having money in the bank, and we've been farming you know, without a bank for quite a few years now, uh, that obviously is a, is a positive benefit, a lot less stress. I say um, the lack of stress on uh, the farming operation on the marriage is one of the major benefits, but it's also a sense of calm, a sense of peace, knowing that we're going to do okay no matter what. The good Lord can send me a hailstorm again this year. Really won't affect us a whole lot. Okay. Yeah, we wouldn't uh, make as much money off the grain crops, but the livestock are going to do fine, you know, and Knowing we have the resiliency on our operation that we used to not have, uh, there's no better feeling than that. When Robin and I had a chance to visit your farm, and um, I, I'm going to, we'll put the questions aside here for just a second. I want to I share this. Um, when, to back up a little bit, first off in 2016, I saw at the National No-Till Conference, and I thought, wow, you know, the soil changes, that's amazing. We talked about that. Then you had your follow-on presentation about direct marketing and how, you know, what the per acre profit is of a, of a you know, of a steer, of a, of a sow, of, a, of layers and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, hmm, we're, we're leaving a lot of profitability on the table, you know. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that's got to hear it a couple of times. So then three weeks later, you're at No-Till on the Plains, gave the same presentations again, you know, and I'm taking the same notes again and, and I've, I've been to a lot of conferences and, and there are some people who say things and don't do what they do. <laughs> you know, they just, they just uh, say things to tickle the ears. And I thought, okay, one of two things, either this guy is completely full of crap. Okay. And I just need to throw these notes away and, and move on. Or if he's truly doing this, I need to do it. So like I, I say, I, for my wife's birthday, you know, I, I scheduled a, <laughs> a, a tour of the Dakotas. We went to see uh, uh, Dr. Beck and um, uh, came on up to your place, saw Jay Fuhrer and Mononkin Farm and, and all those kind of things. And on the way home, I realized that, yep, it's true. 
So we, we've got to do the voodoo that you do. And uh, we, we've jumped into this. But, you know, something you mentioned when we were there, I thought was really interesting. And I, I you've seen thousands, millions of people since then. But showing us, Robin and I, around toward the end, you, you said something to us. I, I'd stuck in my head. Do you remember what that was? I'm putting you on the spot here. Probably doubt it. <laughs> But no, I mean, but you said I talk a lot, Bonnie. You know, well, okay, so you totally <laughs> made this up and you said, I can tell you're going to do something with this. And, no. and uh, and I'm like, hey, I remember that now ball. that you said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I remember that now because we talked about that later. We yeah. talked about that afterwards. Here's why, though, I said that. You know, and I we do get a lot of people coming to the place, and I, I try and give them whatever time I can. What really surprised me when you and Robin came is that it wasn't just for an afternoon. You stayed, you went to the farmer's market when we were at the farmer's market there. You went to the food co-op where we were selling product there. You immersed yourself in the whole, you know, everything we were doing and that's the reason I said that is most people, you know, they want a recipe card. Well, I could tell in you that that you understood immediately this isn't a recipe. This is going to take a lot of work to, 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 to make work in your context. But in saying that, it was that desire to learn is the reason I said what I did there. And I don't say that to very many. You know. The reason I say that is not for, you know, a compliment. Yeah. I'm saying that so that others here hear it as in mm -hmm. don't just go to um, scratch an itch, right? Go to yeah. immerse yourself and learn, jump mm -hmm. in, throw yourself into the fire and, and, and see what comes out. Don't, don't you think right. there's a, a fear that people have that prevent them from really experiencing all that they could. Right. And, and I think, Bonnie, you know, and quite honestly, you have been involved in a number of businesses. You know what it takes to run a business. And you know that it's not a recipe card because your context on your farm is different than mine. You're going to have to do things a bit differently. You know, you're working with much higher priced land, uh, more rainfall there. Uh, conditions are different, a little bit harder to integrate livestock at certain times of the year due to that moisture. You know, you got to prevent some pugging in the fields, et cetera. So, so those are all things. Now, to your benefit, you've got a wealth of potential customers very close to you. So, so that that's, you know, it's all gets back to context. Right, right. But um, no, I, I think that's uh, it's interesting. You know, you bringing up the family there and such. And I do want to touch on later about uh, transition and family transition. You, you've mentioned that before in the past, and I think that's really important for our farmers to hear. But uh, we're going to save that toward the end. So stay tuned. Don't tune us. Don't turn us off just yet. Um, another person uh, had some questions here. What what is the definition of regenerative? And yep. then my follow up question is is why do we need a definition? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I think uh, the devil is in definitions and it's everybody's grasping for this right now. So 
Uh, yeah. Take it away. I'll I'll be here about a half an hour later. Okay. Yeah. So actually, we put together a pretty simple definition of regenerative agriculture, and it's one we use often. And I think it'd be pretty hard to shoot holes in it. It's farming and ranching in synchrony with nature to repair, rebuild, revitalize, and restore ecosystem function, beginning with all life in the soil, moving to all life above the soil. Simple as that, because it's all encompassing. Now that's regenerative agriculture. That's not just regenerative. Right. And I think, um, you know, really the, the organic movement started there mm-hmm. and then it got hijacked by definitions and get a hijack to a list of products you can or cannot use, which is essentially what it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's there's the, the tillage intensity, the lack of rotation, those kind of principles probably weren't there when the organic movement started, right? It was more regenerative natured. What I mean, organic today is basically conventional farming with organic inputs. Am I wrong? In or the most, no, part, you, I'm sorry, the, the yeah. There are certainly organic yes. practitioners out there that are regenerative yeah. minded. Um, yes. I apologize for that, but I mean, yep. big corporation approach. Yes, it's- that is the the prevailing mindset. And I tell people this, some of the healthiest soils I've ever seen are on organic operations. Some of the unhealthiest soils I've ever seen are on organic operations. Mm-hmm. It's just like regenerative. I've been on very healthy regenerative farms, not so healthy regenerative farms. And so it all comes back to the mindset of the person managing that operation. That's what it comes down to. I think long-term regenerative will be measured not by the inputs or practices that were used to grow the crop or food or animal or livestock, it will be a quantification of the result, the nutrient yeah. density, the quality of the food that were, because everything to date has been focused on how you do it, not on yeah. what you did, right? It's not- what do you do with the produce? What did you do with the land? What did you do with the ecosystem? Those questions we've never seriously quantified, right? And this is exactly why, Monty, my partners and I, along with Doug Peterson, formed the company Regenified. What we saw was a terrible greenwashing starting to occur in this regenerative space. It's probably the fastest ever, don't you think? uh, I, you know, one of the things I I really try and do is keep track of industry trends. And I remember uh, a year ago reading in a magazine, and this was a grocer's magazine, that no term has caught on and resonated with consumers as quickly as has the word regenerative. And so my partners and I and Doug saw that that regenerative was kind of being hijacked and we were afraid it was going to go down the same path as the organic movement. And so Doug Peterson, to his credit, put together a series of protocols to be verified regenerative. And um, we, well, I am not at liberty at the time of this recording, but perhaps by the time you you play this to your listeners, a major announcement will be made 
that will um, we feel have significant long-term impacts as to the regenerative movement and as to the verification process of this movement. Because these protocols that Doug put together are the most encompassing of any protocol out there. Uh, way more encompassing than the regenerative organic certification or the, the ecological outcome verification, many of those other verifications that are out there. So that's all I'm at liberty to say at this date, but it's coming quickly. And here's the, the reason this is so important to your listeners. We have right now, we are in negotiations with a number of the major buyers of uh, products being produced in the US. And these companies are willing to pay a significant premium for products that are verified regenerative. So our goal is how do we get more dollars in producers' hands for what they're doing, and that will be the reward for them going down the regenerative path. So some more questions always come after answering a question. Uh, I think that's incredible. And, and I think there's certainly protocols need to be followed on the input side. I'm excited about some of the food sensors, the tests that Dr. Van Vliet's doing, the yeah. Bionutrient Food Association, all those things on the actual is this in the upper 20th percentile of nutrient density mm -hmm. of everything we sample? So I think mm -hmm. there's technologies coming on that, on that other, other side too. And, and we're getting yep. closer and closer to quantifying what's going on with carbon in the soil and, and those kind of things. So it's really going to come from both ways is what you're saying, you know, yep. better practices and protocols on how we actually do it. And the technology is coming to verify what we actually did. Exactly, Monty. And I really feel that in the near future, Farmers will be able to garner a premium based on the fact that food can be and should be used as preventative medicine. So it'll come down to the work that Dr. Van Vliet and the work that, that the Bionutrient Food Association is doing as far as what is the nutrient density of the foods you're producing. You know, I contend that today we don't eat food. We eat food-like substances in, in many cases. We have to get away from that. We have a human health crisis going on all over the world. Mm -hmm. And you can trace a part of that. I'm not saying all, but a large part of that back to the lack of nutrient density in the food that's being produced today. That is true. And, um, you, you know, what you're what you're looking at there is. Um, Shoot, I've lost my train of thought where we were going there because there's just so much going through my mind right now. Well, it, it's um, a matter of these phytonutrient compounds correct. and how we measure them and and, yeah. and the fact that that's really what drives animal right. health, human health. It's these phytonutrient compounds. And the only way to get those is through a healthy soil ecosystem. And um, I remember what it was now, the premiums. You know, normally when farmers hear premiums, they're thinking you know, maybe a little bit extra uh, lint quality on their cotton or a little extra size on their almonds or a little extra red on their tomatoes. And it's going to be uh, maybe a 10% revenue at the very best. No, we are talking 2x, 3x revenue values, correct? Not only it, in 
food quality, yeah. but in the ecosystem services. This is this is like game changing premium. So that you're yeah. actually growing the crop will be almost secondary to the ecosystem services and the nutrient premiums that we're getting in total. Yep. Let me share with you one I am at liberty to share. Um, one of our clients is a, uh, they supply grains, specialty, well, not specialty, it's, it's wheat, okay? Mm -hmm. Wheat to uh, millers, okay? They just signed a regenerative contract at 30%. Well, the contract is for a dollar a pound. Okay, a dollar a pound for wheat, $60 a bushel. The that's premium a, paid to little farmers. Than, uh, what was it, $14.50? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wheat. So, yeah, we no, wheat's not that high. Wheat's only be about eight bucks. So, yeah. So, eight bucks would be. Uh, yeah, we're talking significantly higher. Now, the premium paid to the farmer will be uh, 30% higher than organic prices. That's significant. That's significant. So uh, this is another why, you know, both of us are, are, are not afraid to say we're capitalists, right? Mm -hmm. And But the good part is, is a farmer is going to directly benefit from the great practices and the great quality that they're doing. And Correct. that is Correct. wonderful. And when that lines up, guess what? More farmers will do yep. the right thing, period. That's that's exactly right. It gets back to what you said earlier. We have to, farmers deserve and need to be paid based on outcomes. You yep. know, right now, if I was to haul my corn to the local terminal, I'm going to be paid the same as everybody else even though mine corn averages over 10% crude protein compared to average in the industry, less than five now. Okay. That, you know, that's why Gabe, I haven't sold at a grain terminal for a lot of years because <laughs> I'm going to demand a higher premium, plain and simple. And we all should be. So I've, I've gotten us off course here a little bit, but I think we went in a great place. Uh, but back to the definition of regenerative, one of the things you like to say and and I love this. I'm going to just cue it up for you and let you do it. Is sustainable the word sustainable? <laughs> Go for yeah. it. Yeah. Well, why would we want to sustain a? Why would we want resource? to sustain a degraded resource? You know. And I tell people, you know, I have been on hundreds of farms, ranches all over the world, and I have never, ever, not once, stood on a farmer ranch, including my own, that's not degraded. Show me one. They're all degraded, you know. Uh, you know, and I know that many people believe theirs is not degraded. Let me come and do an infiltration test sometime on your soils. But mm -hmm. you know, how much if your soil is not degraded, then why are you having to add copious amounts of inputs to get that type of production? It's degraded because you don't have the biological activity, right? So we have to get away from the word sustainable. We all need to be regenerative. Correct. And uh, that you brought up inputs, and that's right on the next question we had here, is can you use inputs and be considered regenerative? Should we be using no inputs with less production or use inputs correctly and shoot for good production? 
Yeah. And without a doubt, my answer to that is you can use inputs. Okay. Our goal, sometimes people think that, oh, in order to be regenerative, I have to slash all inputs. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is use them wisely. Okay. And then shoot for profitable production production that is in context with your environment you know there is no way soils can be sustained a 400 bushel um corn yield year after year after year it's just not going to happen you will become carbon depleted you know and and so we have to get to a level that we can advance ecosystem function and not degrade it. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that you're looking at there with the, the inputs discussion, there are some, some hardcore people like, Oh, no inputs. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, that's fine. If you're growing a hundred percent within your context, you know, if it's a yep. grassland savanna with, with grazing bison, mm -hmm. why would you have inputs? Right. That's yep. what was there prior to the plow. So, so go for it. But when I was out in, in, you know, the water thing is, has always been serious in California ever since I've been there, but it, it's truly, we, we are at a true end of a lot of acres yeah. right now with the mm -hmm. Sigma, which is a sustainable groundwater management act where pumping of groundwater is going to be limited to probably about 50% of what they could before. Now, if you're in Yogalala, you're like, what's new about that? We've had this going on for 20, 30 years, right? But uh, California has finally gotten to it. And, uh, you know, when I was, I'm look at the California context, what was that, right? It was a seasonal marsh, you know, annual grasses, uh, ruminants of elk and, and uh, you know, even bison in California and such, uh, grazing and such. But look at how far from that original context, California agriculture is today, you know, applying four feet of water per acre, uh, you know, monocrop orchards everywhere, you know, uh, 20 years at a time with, with no cover crops, uh, heavy chemical intensive, the energy inputs we have, the fertilizer inputs we have, the water inputs we have, the labor inputs we have that are so different from original. You know, the further away that you get, the more costs it takes to get away from the original context. And now we've had the water taken away. So that that is going to have to adjust. And mm -hmm. I just think we've gotten so far down. You know, when I was there, it was uh, it, originally it was cotton and wheat on the west side and, you know, kind of cotton and tomatoes. And then, well, we have to have trees because that's the only thing we can afford to pay the high water. But they take more water. You know, we've just kind of oh, yeah. compounded unintended bad decisions yep. right um yep isn't that just happening everywhere and, and how it, what does it take to stop that thinking to to turn around yep yep you know my business partner dr alan williams came up with the rule of compound that every decision we make on our farm or ranch has either positive compounding effects or negative cascading effects and you're so right, Monty. I look at like, for instance, in the Chihuahuan Desert, we went down there in Mexico. There's an area in the desert, 70,000 acres of irrigated apple trees. 
talking to the producers there, when they started, their wells were 400 feet deep. They're now down to 1,600 plus feet deep in order to get water. Okay, that is so far out of context, you know, an orchard in the desert like that. Yet they're doing it under the guise of we have to feed the world. Okay, and I think that's why a lot of this is done. You know, Alan Williams, Ray Archuleta, and myself, one evening we were sitting around and we asked ourselves, we gave each of us a piece of paper, write down the five most degraded places we've ever been. Would you believe all three of us, not looking at each other's, we all listed Central Valley of California as the most degraded place we've ever been, okay? But, and the others fell in there behind. It's where we're so far out of context, that's the most degraded. I would question, why are we, what's Central Valley of California known for? Producing produce, right? Lettuces, peppers, tomatoes, etc. Why are we not producing those in the Corn Belt? We certainly could. There's plenty of moisture. Why we aren't we did. doing it? We did. Yeah, we used time. to. <laughs> we used to. Right. Why aren't we doing that today? Okay. I think one thing COVID showed us is just how at risk our food production system is. We have to get to a more localized type system where we're producing these, these uh, goods within our context. And we can do that. You know, you look at, I mentioned Brendan Rocky earlier, the San Luis Valley up there, the high desert of Colorado, Southern Colorado. Uh, I talked to Brendan here a year ago. He said they, they're estimating they only have about seven years of water left in that area. What are they going to do after that? Look at Western Colorado, Western Texas, all those irrigated areas. They're depleting water so fast, yet why aren't they getting back to in their context? Okay. It's under the guise of we have to feed the world. But the last figures I had from 2020, we produced enough food in this world to feed 10.3 billion people. At that time, there was 7.1 billion people on this planet. Now, there's a bit more of that now. We're approaching 8 billion. But producing enough food is not the problem. We don't have to feed the world. The world needs to feed itself. And the way to do that is through these regenerative practices, stacking enterprises. Take my ranch here, for instance. I produce spring wheat. My neighbor produces spring wheat, okay? Our yields are comparable, okay? Well, that's all they produce on an acre of land. Then I'm going to grow a cover crop. We're going to run grass-finished beef. We're going to have grass-finished lamb. We've got honey production on there. We've got poultry production on there. I'm going to feed the world way before the conventional model feeds the world. So that, that's just feeding the world is not the challenge Many people want us to believe it's just not. The other thing to be aware of, and uh, we've got 41 billion acres in the Corn Belt feeding ethanol plants. Yeah. That isn't feeding the world. No. Oh, 41, 41 million. I'm sorry. I said yeah. I, 41 I, million. I had a Joe yeah. moment there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I would say yeah. you look at the 8 million cultivated acres in, in California, and if we could get half of the yield in these other locations, we got, we got acres to spare. We really do. And, well, and uh, it's just yeah. a matter of allocation and, and those kind of things. So it, it, we've, we've built a compounded and cascading industry that is 
Yeah. It, it just, it's uh, it's ripe for sense. a major adjustment. It is. And it's coming. It is. And the person yeah. that's going to bring it is the consumer, in my yeah. opinion. I, they, they vote. That's, ex that's exactly right. And that exactly gets back to the comment of we have to start thinking of food as preventative medicine. Food is health. And that's why it's so important, this work that's going on by by so many right now yeah. to quantify the importance of nutrient-dense food. So that kind of leads up to this. Uh, the next question was, what is the direction of agriculture or big ag? Is is it headed? You know, where is it headed and, and where should it head? Yeah, I think there's, there's different fractions of big ag. So I think, uh, you know, you could speak to the food producers and what they're doing, trying to meet sustainability goals, emissions goals, those kind of things. But then you're kind of strangled by the big ag that I imagine this person was asking on would be big chem and and the big four packers uh, more on the production side. Uh, mm -hmm. how, talk about the polarity of those two, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the big chem, big, big processing versus big food and, mm -hmm. and where that's they're They're coming to a head, aren't they? Yeah. I spend the majority of my time sitting here in front of a screen on a laptop talking to boards of directors, heads of sustainability of these major companies, they see a change coming. You know, if you would have thought, I would have never thought three years ago that I would be having multiple conversations with the boards of directors of Bayer to uh, talk to them about what is regenerative agriculture and how do they play it into it and what do I foresee as the future of it? Realize all of those companies are formed to create a profit, okay? So they wanna make money. Now they're not so naive to not follow these trends and see that consumers are beginning to demand a change. And you're right, it's with the consumer. So you talk about the Packers, well, Right now, Understanding Ag is actually consulting with a number of those because they see what I talked about earlier. They see that the change in um, the change in the driven demand of the pasture protein industry, grass-finished beef, for example, and they are wondering how do they get into that? How do they produce? Because the packers, you know, let's be real, let's be honest here, it's kind of a closed system. They're, they're pretty much uh, tying up their own supply and supplying themselves. So they're moving down this path also. So I think, Monty, it comes down to the consumer, as you said, is going to drive change. I am not so focused on, on changing their minds as I am in changing consumers' education and helping them to understand. Because all we really need to get is 15 to 18% of consumers to demand and the companies will change. And squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's right. And one of the ways that you, you help to uh, squeak the wheel, I think, is uh, the Kiss the Ground movie. Uh, that was at your place. Uh, I enjoyed it. If you haven't watched it, you definitely need to. I think it's on Netflix. Talk about the impact that's made and, and awareness of the, on the consumer level. Yeah, so uh, Kiss the Ground started out to be a movie about organic production. 
And then they got a hold of Ray Archuleta and Ray Archuleta said, oh, you need to go to North Dakota and visit with Gabe. And so they followed Ray around, came here. And I thought the Kiss the Ground movie was good in that it kind of uh, started to up the awareness. However, the interesting thing about that is one of uh, our clients watched Kiss the Ground and he called me up and said, Gabe, I just watched that movie and it was good. But I think it didn't go far enough. He said, do you know the producers? And I said, yes. And he said, get me an introduction. So now, uh, somewhat of a sequel to Kiss the Ground, and they haven't decided on a name yet, might be called Common Ground, was filmed over the past two years. And they just wrapped up filming here at my place this fall. And that's going to take it to a much higher level. It's going to talk about um the what needs to be done and why it needs to be done and it's going to show the path forward so we actually highlight in there they will highlight a number of producers who are at various stages of regenerative ag and how it's changed their operation and then it's going to talk in depth about the meaning to the consumer and to society so watch for that uh, they they actually wrapped up the filming of it, and it's being put together. It'll be released in 2023. That's awesome. Glad to hear the yep. follow-up. That Those yep. those make a huge impact. And that documentary space is dominated by a lot of the the vegan movement and, and anti, anti-cow movement and yep. such. And, uh, you know, it's back to it's, it's the it's the how, not the cow. And, yeah. Interestingly <laughs> enough, enough, Monty, we have had eight documentaries filmed on our ranch this in 2022 so you're going to be seeing a lot more unfortunately of my mug but uh, a lot more of this regenerative movement there is real interest worldwide three of those documentaries came about uh in that the foreign publishers of my book sent crews over to film documentaries on regenerative ag here in the United States. So that's a good thing. It is accelerating at a rapid pace exponentially. So that's right. That is awesome. All right. So you and I love to talk big picture stuff and, and such, but you know, we have a lot of farmers here on the podcast. So we got more how to type of questions here, just how you do it on your operation. And I realize really Paul's doing this now, but uh, you can speak for him and and if, if he needs to correct you, we'll get in touch with him, okay? <laughs> but he, he says, uh, please ask Gabe to review the general outline and strategies for managing a cattle herd. So this is your really, the good part is I didn't have cattle before I met you and, and I, I purchased uh, some cows from you to get started. Uh, so I was starting with a blank slate. I didn't have to unlearn anything, but for many cattle producers, you do things a lot different, Okay. Uh, you know, details such as culling, preg checks, and when to put bulls in, take them out, calving, weaning, et cetera, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. I think maybe just starting a, a year cycle and kind of the sure. the so be it uh, philosophy. I think that's one yep. of the famous words I got from you when we were visiting. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, he's he knows you've shared this before, but there's value in hearing it again. Maybe he's had some additional improvements. So, yeah, kind okay. of take it away. What's your, how you're fundamentally different than, than others in your cow-calf, but also in your finishing process. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, I was in the purebred business, the registered business for 25 plus years, Gavin in February and March, 
you know, weaning those calves in September, putting a lot of grain to them, et cetera. And we were successful at it. But, you know, I was killing myself calving in February and March in North Dakota. And as I mentioned earlier, we were raising grass-finished beef for our own consumption. And that gnawed at me because I was seeing this trend for grass finish. So I knew I wanted to make the switch. Well, Paul was finishing up uh, college and we knew he was coming back to the ranch. And so we sat down with him and I said, we need to get back and ranch within our context. Okay. Deer do not drop their fawns in February in North Dakota. That just doesn't happen. So we immediately cold turkey now realize I financially was able to do this. We knew that there'd be a large fallout when we changed our calving period in our management. So we went from calving in February and March to calving May 15th to the end of June. But then we did not wean the calves in September. We left them on the cows out grazing the majority of the winter. Okay. You talk about a big fallout of a herd. We literally turned, you know, 50 plus percent of our cow herd in two plus years. Okay. It was a big follow, but we were ready for that. The cull cows became our income. Then we retained heifers because one of the things Monty that I learned over time, and I learned a lot of this from, from Dr. Fred Provenza and Dr. Alan Williams is the power of epigenetics. Okay. Dr. Provenza showed that if you feed a pregnant you a low energy ration while she's carrying a fetus, that resulting offspring will perform better on a low energy diet. So I took that information and realized we're really programming the fetuses, the resulting offspring to thrive in our environment. So not only do our cows have to have a calf hanging on them during the winter, grazing through two plus feet of snow, but they have to be developing a fetus in them on the feedstuffs that are naturally available on our ranch, which on our ranch, it means poor quality brome grass and dry native forage, okay? Now, most will say the old mindset is, oh, you have to supplement protein, you have to give them energy. No, if, if they can't thrive in our environment, they become open. They're not going to rebreed. They're gone. There's no second chances on our ranch. So what we do then, we wean those calves in uh, April, early April. Those cows then have a 45-day period to pick up flesh and to then calve again. Meanwhile, the calves we just weaned go right back out on stockpiled forage. In other words, it's forage that was not grazed the previous year. And in our environment, it takes about 12 to 15 months for our pastures to truly recover. So they're then uh, go out on that and they're developed on that. We also have the mindset, we do not supplement like our heifer calves. What happens then come August 5th, all of our heifer calves get exposed to the bulls. We dump multiple bulls and these are bulls that we raised off our herd in with the heifers for 30 days, okay? 60 days after removing those bulls, we're gonna ultrasound those heifers. If they're bred, they either go in our cow herd or get sold to somebody like Monty. If not, they go into the grass finish program, okay? 
and we're grass finishing our animals at anywhere from 24 to 28 months of age, they're finished. What we're finding is by putting these stringent culling requirements on these animals, they're naturally selecting and they have the epigenetics to thrive in our environment. Okay, here we are, we're recording this. It's the, the 2nd of December today, and we've had three feet of snow in the last three weeks. Our cattle are still all out grazing. They're grazing through that snow. And people will say, oh, that's inhumane. If you think it's inhumane, walk down to your corral and open the gate and see if your cattle want to stay in the corral or do they want to go out and graze, right? I, I don't think there's anything humane about letting animals express their natural instinct, okay? And they're doing just fine. Now, I will say when we made the switch in calving dates, we also dropped all um all vaccinations all wormers etc now i'm going to be the first to say if you're in an environment that's high in any of these brucellosis lepto etc you're not going to want to do that okay i don't want people to have a wreck but we've done it and we've gotten by just fine so what we're doing is trying to produce cattle that fit our environment and you're going to say yeah gabe but that's not what the packers want Okay, what's going to make me more money? Getting a dollar or two premium because it's the kind the packers want or saving me hundreds of dollars per head because my animals can thrive on my environment without that processed forage. Mm -hmm. Very good. So overview, we're exposing our heifers on August 5th. We're going to uh, 30 days. So you're, you're mainly to hit one heat because you need a little more than the, the 21 mm -hmm. days because they can cycle it. Uh, various lengths right when they're younger mm -hmm. and there's some disturbance and moving and such so that's why you're giving them 30 days to make sure you hit one heat but you're yeah. not giving them 45 to get two no. heats. we do give any, sure fertile. yeah any of the cows so from uh first calf heifer on there those we expose for 45 days okay so yep. you're being very generous there. I know we could <laughs> cut that. Yeah. So what, okay. On your heifers, you said a lot of bulls. What is your ratio bulls to heifers? Yeah. Yeah. So it's about one per 25. And then on your cows, what are you doing? Yeah. Probably one per 30. Okay. And then homegrown bulls, like you said, how are you making yep. those bull selections based on yeah. uh, you doing any yep. sonar work or are you just doing uh uh, based on this cow has had a bull for eight seasons straight with no problems. Uh, how, how are you making those selections? Yep. Good question. And so what's the hardest thing to, for, to breed into an animal? It's fertility. Okay. So what Paul does is when cows are calving, he goes out and if it's a bull calf, if that cow is approximately eight years old or older, means she's got longevity in our environment, running as rough as we do. And she's got a good udder, good feet and legs, good disposition, everything else. He leaves the bull intact. If not, that bull gets banded at birth. That is the only time our animals get handled, except when we're, we're for PG and the heifers or that. They all get a tag in there. And the reason we do it at birth is we have to have a tag in there when we send the animals to kill plant you know, if they get finished. So we tag them at birth, they don't get handled again. You know how much labor that cuts down on? How much expense it cuts down on? Mm -hmm. Tremendous. 
so then what we do is those those are uh, left bulls usually does that with 15 to 20 head every year and come weaning time he'll take a look at them if there's something obvious doesn't look like he like he wants it to he'll band it then then those young bull calves come august they're not very big we dump the older bulls out with the cows for the first cycle second cycle all those young bulls go in with them or in with the the heifers the first cycle that way they get a little taste of what it's like to breed but when they're two years old that's when they really start seeing heavy use right right and then back on the uh the bowl there you're saying you make that band decision do you do um do you check up do uh sperm check semen testing semen testing on the bulls no no well no we have not been and that's simply because we're running so many you know we're not because a, a bull should really be able to handle 50 to 75 animals in right. a 45 day period. You know, and the reality is if you do have a dud of one of those 15 yearlings, um, yeah. you're, it's already too far along that for the meat quality, yeah. it's, it's not going to come back out of it. Right. So yeah. just, so be it, let him be out there and you've got 14 others to cover and they're going to go yeah. for bull beef. Uh, I assume you sell those grind or do you wholesale those? Yeah, though no, those will be sold as grind. They'll go into jerky sticks, etc. Okay. Yeah. Very good. And 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 we we do keep an eye on them, seeing which ones are the most aggressive breeders, etc. Yep. 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 And then um yeah, I mean that pretty much covers it. So you're looking at uh if you have a May 15th, you pull them 45 days, you're you're uh potentially maximum uh nursing for 10 and a half months. You average right at 10 months mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and those kind of things. And then uh, you said those go to stockpile forage. So that's your backgrounding program is stockpile. And mm-hmm. then they go through the following winter again on stockpile forage. And, and, and some bale. Oh, some we, bale. Grazing. Yeah. We do have to bale graze. Uh, we've gotten down to as few as 18 days bale grazing in a winter. But you take like this year, you know, we have three feet of snow already, more snow coming next week. You do reach a point where it's just physically impossible for those cows to, especially with calf hanging on them or those uh, uh, grass finishers. We don't want them to slip backwards. Uh, So then we will uh, bale graze. Then when you come off a winter with that uh, a yearling or coming to, mm-hmm. that's when they go to your cover crops, right? Are you going well, to winter cover crops, then summers, or are you staying on stockpile and just going summers like August on? It all depends on what we have available. You know, the last three years, extremely dry. Um, so the cover crops, the, the winter biennials are slow to develop. So we went on to some stockpiled perennials from the year before. Normally, though, we'll we'll graze those fall biennials. Then we'll graze uh, perennials, perennial cool season, uh, dominant pastures. Then we'll go on to some native uh, pastures. Then we usually finish the animals uh, late August, September, early October on these diverse warm season cover crop mixes. And they go right from there to kill. And it's amazing. Those uh, warm season cover crop mixes are are awesome at storing sugars on a, after a frost kill. And they will, yeah. they just love to eat that stock. And if you get a chance to taste it yourself, it's just like eating honey. 
it's amazing the power of some of these cover crops to to finish an animal so yeah we we can get three and a half to four pounds a day gain on these animals weighing 11 to 1200 pounds on those warm season mixes doing a minimum of once daily moves yep so fertility drives everything and as far as meat quality you doing any selections on that yeah so we do not um do ultrasounding to select anything for meat quality because the reason is that with these pastured proteins, what we're seeing is, and this gets off into the phytonutrient um, conversation, if you have these diverse mixes, these animals are going to get a wide array of these phytonutrients, and that's going to drive the nutrient makeup of their muscle their flesh. We are consistently uh, monitoring what we produce for omega-6-3 ratios, CLAs, etc. And we've been able to consistently produce grass-finished proteins with an omega-6-3 to ratio of 1.3 to 1. Now, Dr. David Montgomery in his book, What Your Food Ate, talks about that the Grass-finished beef on our operational consistently outperform wild salmon for omega-6 to 3 ratios. That's pretty astounding because people think, oh, wild salmon, that's the pinnacle. No, no, it's not. We can get that in our pasture proteins also. Not only does that have to do with your soil quality, but it also has to do with your management practices. When you're When you're causing those animals to live lean, right through those yep. winter months and such that's a, a fasting yep. type approach you're you're changing biology of the rumen but also the ph of their their bloodstream yeah they're, they're running a a alkaline ph uh you know eating that way so that that drives that omega-3-6 ratio in in the yeah. body so a- absolutely gabe should fast a little more um <laughs> who are you talking to right now Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only talking about myself. I, I think I think I could do that too. You know, here I am selling healthy proteins. I'm not quite the poster child for it. So oh, yeah. gotta work on but, that. But but Monty, I'll I'll spin off that though. To our defense here in my okay, I tell people this. I know when they look at me, I just, you know, people envision health by looking at me. But Absolutely. think of it this way. Okay, during the COVID pandemic, I was on over five hundred flights. Okay. I had I contracted COVID a couple times. Did it slow me down? Not one bit. Why? Because I have a, such a healthy gut microbiome. Because when I travel, I pretty much take my own food with me. And I eat what I consider nutrient-dense foods, okay? High in these, these phytonutrient compounds. So people may look at us and not think we're healthy. But, okay, there, there's two ways to look at that. How healthy is your gut microbiome? How healthy is your immune system? We need to look at that also. So I, there, a little bit of defense for guys well, like you and I. I appreciate that. It's it's pretty rare that I get sick. Uh, COVID did did take me down a little bit. Uh, I had the original recipe, and then I also had the extra crispy uh, Omicron. So uh, <laughs> Omicron was like, eh, sniffle. But uh, the original did get me down a little bit, so I need to eat a little more. I need to raise a little better beef is what you're telling me here. <laughs> telling me i'm not doing a good job there <laughs> no 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 all right 
Well, I tell you what, uh, we need to take a little, another little pause here to make sure the recording stays uh, in, in good shape. Uh, we got a couple more questions we'll have, but then I want to talk some some big picture future and and where and where you and I hope that um, agriculture is going to go long term. So. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And, and this has been great having an extended conversation here with Gabe Brown today. We're going to take a little pause and we'll be right back. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now, back to our show. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're now in our third segment here. Uh, Gabe, he just told me that he doesn't drink coffee at all. See, I had to go get another cup to keep up with him. So he he never started that habit, so he doesn't have that problem. So... I probably should have listened to that a long time ago, but uh, yeah, you don't, you don't want to know my habits though, Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not Irish coffee, but maybe it should be. <laughs> so uh, on the break, uh, Gabe was telling me a little bit. He says, one other thing he forgot to mention is on his cow herd. He doesn't actually preg check his cow herd. He does his heifers, but not his preg check, uh, not his cow herd. He just watches for them to become fat as ticks. And then in June, if uh, calving's done and he notices they don't have a cap on them, they go to become 4th of July hamburgers because that's a hot market right then. So, um, boy, when you do all that, look at the lack of labor involved. And you've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years okay. production practice. No, this production practice we started, it were probably going on 14 years or so of this. And Yep. And at that time, I mean, labor's always been an issue, right, on farm, but uh, it's a huge issue now. So if you really look at the the labor that you're making the cattle work for you instead of you work for the cattle, uh, you're definitely, you know, kicking the, kicking the hay habit. Jim Garish would, would love what you're doing there with, you know, minimal days of feed, even in droughts. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're destocking, uh, going with your context as needed. Mm -hmm. um, any other pro tips you've got there for your... Um, yeah. There, there's one other one that I see over and over again with our clients when it comes to a cow herd. We see the vast majority of producers are overstocked. What we practice on our ranch, Alan Shane, and what we recommend to our clients is how many cows can you run in your worst drought year? In your context, your worst drought year, how many cows can you run? That's all the cows you should have on your farm then. What you do then is you use yearlings, stockers, et cetera, as a variable. That way you're not destocking, you're not going buying high price feed to keep the cow herd going. The past three years here at Bismarck, North Dakota are the three driest ever recorded. We had 6.2, 5.6, and up until this last snowfall here, 6.15 inches of total precipitation. Okay. Well, thanks for not stealing it from everybody else. You know. Yeah. We yeah. appreciate it. We have not had to destock one animal. We're wow. still running the same numbers. But the reason for that is because we keep our cow herd at that level. So what we do is we use the stockers, the finishers as the variable. So when you've got a normal year, you're keeping, you know, a person keeping more. stockers. Yep. 
And then if you have a great year, you keep them for finishers and, yep. and take advantage of that. So yeah. that way you're you're keeping your your genetic program going, your epigenetics. You're not yeah. not having wild swings in that. Yeah, we we always keep finishing animals because of the meat business that we run. We need to supply, but what we do is we may not keep as many uh, steers over and grass finish them. You know, we we keep the numbers we need to sustain the meat business and then use the stockers as the variable. Very good. Well, Scott's going to love all those answers there. He he asked that question. So uh, there you go, Scott, you know, everything you need to know now it's been revisited and I got, I've picked up a few things I'd forgotten too. So thank you for that. Um, now we've created this animal. Another uh, JR asks here, he says, how do, how do we get customers to start to think different when buying their food? He says, I know selling by the cut is how they currently think. And going to buy food weekly, but is it possible to get them to buy for a month, six month, or years worth of food? Anything information or marketing should should we be using our energy at all trying to change the consumer customer or just give them what they want and continue to sell them products weekly? Well, that's a really interesting question, one that I have not heard before. But is in my quick thought process is this. I can make way more money selling by the cut than I can by the quarter half whole. So I understand the logistics of it's just a lot less labor involved if you're able to sell in those larger quantities. What I would say, if you want to do that, then it becomes a price point. You're not going to reap as great a return, but you won't have as many dollars in labor into it. So there's a trade-off there. You have to find out where that that magical number is. How much can you charge and still get them to buy in quantity? What we do at certain times of the year, for instance, we just got done talking about uh, killing those cull cows in late June. Fourth of July, we'll offer a discount for buying hamburger in bulk and people have their grilling season ahead of them for the most part yet. So then they're more apt to buy in bulk in quantities. You know, you have to kind of go though by the time of the year, you know, people aren't going to buy a lot of roasts in the spring of the year because they're not going to consume a lot of roasts during the summer months. So you have to look at factors like that. Yeah. Same thing. Ground beef in the winter, patties in the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a seasonality to it. And yes, even though we would like the, the consumer to, to we are addressing the consumer, right? We're, we're giving them what they want. And to the degree that we don't, then we have to discount. So it's, are you willing to give up some margin to, for your convenience? You have to look at that context. What do you have for labor, freezer space, all those kind of things. To make if, if I may, Monty, just on this, for years, uh, Paul sold broiler chickens, whole chickens. And he had friends in the business telling him, Paul, you need to sell parts you've got to sell breasts legs thighs etc okay well finally he caved in and did that then he realized what he was really missing so he went from selling a whole broiler for 25 bucks to selling a pound of chicken breast for 15.99 okay you can't afford to pass up that kind of profit <laughs> the consumer is willing to pay for that ease of just having that breast that leg, that thigh, you got to take advantage of that. And uh, if people are out there doing that, uh, you got to be careful. You got to watch because you're not selling all the pounds in. You know, the carcass is hard to sell. You have to find a way for them 
Uh, but you got to have all those factors built in your costing to make sure you're not yeah. going backwards when you do that. So, yeah. But one, one thing on that note is you just got to be a little more creative. So what Paul's done, you have the frames left when you take everything off, part everything out, you have what called a chicken frame. Well, Paul's taken those and you can add water, grind it down, extrude it. And then he, he uh, sells it as pet food, finely ground pet food for $5 a pound. I got a bunch of chicken frames that are going to become pet food, Gabe. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, just, just don't feed those chicken frames to your chicken guard dogs. Oh yeah. Yeah. They we've gone to a lot of work to uh, train them not to make the chicken food. Don't, don't encourage them. Right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Okay, so I got um, one of our, one of our best uh, listeners, and actually our producer here, Kim. She had some questions for you. I'm throwing. She's she's rolling her eyes here, like, "Oh, you threw me under the bus." But she says, "What do you what do you see as some of the biggest barriers to mass regen ag principles adoption? You know, yeah. how, and how do you overcome these barriers?" Yeah, leave it to Kim to ask the the, the hard questions. So yeah, yeah, that's how. She um, yeah. Great question, Kim. And here's what it's come down to. The main barriers to adoption are, okay, number one, farmers and ranchers cannot implement what they do not know. It's a lack of education. Now, as Monty, you pointed out early in this, in this broadcast, the last two to three years, that's really ratcheted up. Thanks in large part to podcasts such as yours, educational uh, opportunities that you're giving people that should not be an issue anymore people should be able to get educated okay the information's out there a big one though is peer pressure okay as as uh, Monty knows as I know you know we're the odd duck we're we're the one who they're talking about. If Gabe Brown were to walk into the local coffee shop, it would fall silent because I'm a big part of their conversation. I relish that. I, I look at that as a challenge. What can I get them to think about next? But some people cannot handle that peer pressure. So in starting out, what we do with our client, every client has a different aversion to risk. Every person has a different aversion to risk. What will allow you to sleep at night is what I always ask. For some people, they'll try it because what we do with our clients, if they're a bit unsure, okay, what will allow you to sleep at night? Is it a five-acre field? Is it a quarter? What is it? Those people who have that aversion to risk, they're going to try five acres over the hill where none of the neighbors will see. I've had some client, I had a client, 8,000 acres of covers the first year. He just believed in it. It made sense. He was going to do it. You have to find that spot that'll allow you to sleep at night. One of the big drivers, though, that's really inhibiting the adoption of regenerative ag is our current farm program, specifically revenue insurance, okay? Because the vast majority, and I do not know the exact figure, but I'd be willing to bet it's 90% 90, 90 or close to it of farmers, ranchers have to borrow operating capital every spring. Well, their lender is going to tell them, hey, you need to take part in the current program in order to have that revenue insurance. 
And then revenue insurance, when you look at it, is the most ridiculous program you can imagine because we're able to prove out our yields, but then the price is based on last year's overall production across the U.S. and the price of last year. Well, what does that do? That just drives greater and greater production. It's an absolutely stupid program that is really antagonistic to these regenerative principles. And that's one of the reasons that my partners and I refuse to take any government subsidies, any programs. We don't take part in any of them because we want to show people that that's not necessary to be profitable. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't take part in those programs. And I want to be very honest, I did take part in them for years, but I haven't for a long time now. And I tell you what, I don't miss walking into those offices one iota, you know, don't miss it. Yeah. Yep. But that, Kim, is really what's inhibiting it. People feel very uncomfortable and there's a lot of pressure on them to stay on that hamster wheel, so to speak. So, you know, three things you said, knowledge, fear, and the farm programs. Yep. Um, I, I would say the knowledge is there. It, it's motivating people to find it, yep. right? to, to make Agreed. a change, uh, being willing to be open to a change. And then the fear factor, there's certain people that just aren't going to do it because they're scared and it's different and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But you can do something, you know, take a small step. And the farm program is something you have to work with. There are some nuances when you're planting cover crops to graze that just looks a little weird in the FSA office trying to figure those things out, but it, it can be done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you, you just face it, you're going to miss out on a CFAP program. You're going to miss out on, on something, some handout that comes along, but uh, are we farming yeah. for handouts? I mean, what, you know, I, I let's, let's farm for the right, right thing. You know, yeah. I, I think we yeah. both agree on that. Well, and Monty, I can, I contend just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Okay. I'm 62 years old. I could qualify for those, but for crying out loud, we got $30 billion, no, $30 trillion deficit in this country. $30 trillion. Why should I saddle my children and grandchildren with more debt? Because I can get free money. And it's not free. Some taxpayers paying for that. You know, just because you could doesn't mean you should. But that's for each person to decide. I'm not, that's not for me to judge. And the sad part is, is that it's become so prevalent that if you don't participate, you're at a competitive disadvantage. And that's, that, uh, that, that, I'm, you know, that. I'm going to disagree with that. Whole, like all the PPP loans and all that crap that's come out lately, all the free money. Uh, it, it's, it, it's a, it's a nightmare. Yeah, but I'm going to disagree that you can't compete. Because with the profitability, you know, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, in his work, Regenerative Farms and Ranchers, 78% higher profitability. Okay. And I know a number of those did not take part in the program. Okay. So I'm going to disagree that we can compete. Now on the free money deal, yes, um, um, you're turning down a lot. But I tell you what, I can rest easy knowing I haven't burdened my children and grandchildren. At least I did my part. Right, right. I just wish they didn't exist. That'd make yep. it really simple, right? It would. It would. <laughs> it would. Uh, so, yeah, nothing's free. Uh, now, 
Kim cheated. She put on here for Monty, but I think you're going to have to answer it too. Uh, what's been the hardest regen principle for you to adopt and why? Um, okay, so in, in the Corn Belt, most people think livestock integration. That, that required the most work and the most learning and those kind of things. But I wouldn't say that's been the most hardest to accomplish in my area. The hardest thing for me to accomplish in our area has been diversity because of the markets that we have. And on 2,500 acres, uh, having markets for alternatives other than corn and soybeans is difficult. The other thing I've had difficult with in diversity is because we are in corn and soybeans, having diversity of winter cover crops that work well over season. I can't get peas, vetch, you know, any CRI has unfortunately been my boring thing. We just keep trying more and more. We try planting shorter season corns, that kind of thing to get it to go. Aerial seeding, interseeding, you know, big yield environments. We can't get it established in crop. We've just really struggled to get high diversity cover crops in, involved. And we've also struggled to get high diversity cash crops because of lack of really looking for or developing a market on my part. So I would say that's the thing I've destroyed. The principle I've struggled with the most is that what's been the principle you've struggled with the most. And, and that's one that I hear the most Monty is lack of markets. And I'll tell you this story. So uh, understanding ag, we did a webinar on just that on thinking outside the box, developing uh, ulterior markets. And I had a young guy call me the day after that webinar. And he said he started at eight in the morning. He started on the phone to find a market for some barley. And he said, Gabe, I, I quit counting at 50 how many calls I made. But do you know, by the end of the day, I had three specialty markets found that were willing to consider buying my barley. And he said that right there amounted to over $100,000 difference in my bottom line. Farmers and ranchers are very good at producing, mm -hmm. but they're bull crap marketers, okay? They just right. are. And you know what? The greatest return in agriculture always has been, always will be marketing. You know, I, people make excuses for marketing, but really they just don't want to do that. They want to haul it to the local terminal. They want to haul their livestock to the auction barn. That's their idea of marketing. I tell you what, there's a lot of money to be made. And the other thing is, gets back to what I talked about earlier. Why do I want to produce something that everybody else and their mother is producing? I want to produce things that I can really generate a profit from. And, and it's out. You can do that. The thing about the I states, yeah, you may think you only have a market for corn and beans, but I tell you what, there's a lot of other markets. There's a lot of livestock in that area that would pay a premium for grains that are higher in protein. There are microbreweries, you know, jumping up everywhere. There's these small flour mills that, you know, there's a myriad of opportunity to mm -hmm. grow and market other things. I'll share with you some things we are doing uh, with what we have. We're 100% non-GMO, so we do pick up the non-GMO soybean market for export. Uh, we do pick up the corn market for export and those kind of things. Also, half of our corn is uh, food-grade corn, which is actually milled and sent to Italy. 
So we are doing those things. Uh, I'm trying with the corn and soybeans that I do have, trying to get the highest value I can. I did grow some OP corn this year, blue, red, and yellow. Um, and some of that's going for brewing. Some of that's going for milling and those kind of things and direct right. marketing, uh, that kind of thing. I, I'm really interested. And in, like I said, I haven't spent the time and I, I, you know, and I need to, but uh, the buckwheat opportunities, I think are there. Uh, oats are, are certainly there, um, you know, and some other kinds of things. It's just, you know, we found, like you said, we're great at growing things and we suck at selling things, but the money is in the selling, not in the growing. So, you That's know, right. grow, grow a little less and, and spend a little more time on marketing and you'll be ahead. Absolutely. You didn't answer the question, Gabe. You you you, you were hammering on me. <laughs> you caught okay? that. Caught that uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's yeah. been what's been the hardest uh, hardest uh, regen principle for you to adopt? Yeah, and one and of them. Why? Yeah, you know, and, good with just a simple answer. Yeah. So in my context, my environment, you know, our average last killing frost is mid May, and our average first killing frost is by mid September. So that short 110-day window is what many consider the growing season. So the biggest challenge for me has been that living root as long as possible. You know, I talked to you earlier about how develop this barley variety that will overwinter. Things like that to give me more diversity, just like your challenge, which, by the way, Monty, I'll bet you I can get hairy vetch to overwinter on your place. It's the variety. We got to go with the northern source. But um, and I think that's sort of the same problem too. The peas are not being planted yeah. correctly. They're planting them too late in the season for the seed to be viable. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Um, but that that having a living root as long as possible has been the the biggest challenge in my environment. So uh, final question from Kim. She's got the good ones. What what has been the biggest unforeseen benefit of adopting this regen system that surprised you the most? My love life. <laughs> Did you get All that? right. All <laughs> right. So you... Well, the fact of the matter is when you're profitable, you take the stress out of the marriage. <laughs> well, now there was an answer we weren't expecting. There you go, uh, Kim. How's that one? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I want uh, I want confirmation from Shelly on that. Okay, uh, she just we, roll her eyes. We we need to have her on her own podcast to get the, yeah. the real truth behind things here. Yeah, good luck with that. No, but actually, I'm serious when I say lack of stress. You know, being as young as Shelly and I were when we went through those uh, years with the young family and our daughter had some health issues, the stress on the family uh was was really a lot and just now you know money in the bank farming with cash not having to borrow money boy the family is much much happier not that money can buy happiness but just the relief of stress seriously but it does allow you to say that so be it yeah right? you know the yeah. so be it philosophy if if you lose exactly it doesn't breed if you don't get a yeah. great deal so be it you know you're yeah. not under the gun constantly yep so definitely uh you know dave ramsey and you got a lot in common there <laughs> okay let's talk about the naysayers the haters the hate mail those kind of things yep. sure you get it how much hate mail do you get in a day's time you know not as much anymore um now i gotta be honest three years ago i quit using facebook and like because I'll average 200 to 400 emails and phone calls a day. 
And I try my hardest to answer everyone. I'm not saying, or those that need answering. But as far as pure hate mail, it's very little anymore. I might get one or two a day. That's about it, you know? So I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm liked by more than I'm disliked, so... So, so in the past or, or today, I mean, what, what did, the, what do the hate mail, what do they say? What, well, what, the what big, are they sitting on? Yeah. And the big thing is amount of weeds. They call it weeds. They drive by our farm and, oh, you have weeds. No, that's we an, have. That's an Alan Williams Forb. Don't yeah, they Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And no, we don't have weeds. We have Forbes and our animals eat them all, you know, and they do and they relish them. And it's those Forbes that are high in these phytonutrients and, so it's things like that. Another thing is, oh, your yields aren't what some of your neighbors are. No, but I still average 25% higher yields than average in the county. Okay. That's not bad. It's not the very top, but it's not bad. So don't tell me just because I don't have the highest yields, I'm not going to be profitable because I'm stacking enterprises where others aren't, you know? Yield and profit are never the same, are they? That's right. So the next naysayer thing, you can't feed the world this way. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the Farm Bureau has told us we feed the world, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You are just, you're starving poor little children in Africa, Gabe, doing what you're yeah. doing. So let's just use what I was just talking about. So spring wheat, common crop in this area. My proven long-term average for spring wheat, 62 bushels an acre. I've got some neighbors that are in the 70s, okay? So I'm producing about 10 bushels less than them. Now, I'm still considerably higher than the average in the county, okay? But what I say is, okay, they grow a spring wheat crop, right? You can produce so many loaves of bread from that spring wheat crop. A few more loaves on theirs than mine. But that's all they grow on that acre. I'm going to combine my spring wheat. I'm going to plant a diverse cover crop mix. We're going to graze it with our grass-finished beef, maybe our grass-finished lamb. We might have our laying hens out on there. We might have broilers out on there. We might have turkeys out on there. We're producing honey all the time. Who's producing more food per acre? There's no comparison. No comparison at all. I'm going to feed the world way before the conventional model does. And really, nutrient density of food per acre, too. Right. So you're, you're right. Eating, uh higher quality and, and per acre. That's right. So you can feed the world. You're saying that's that myth is busted. You're not, oh. you're not starving poor people that can't afford your high price, uh, high price food. There's another one. Yeah, you there's another one. High price food. How can you, how can you charge that much for food? And I have, uh, I have people throw that at me uh, quite often, but you charge so much. I said, yeah, isn't that great? I'm making a profit. I said, now, does that mean that I couldn't sell it for a lot less and still make money? As you know, Monty, I've been very open about my cost of production, and people have seen those in many of the webinars and podcasts I do that we'd list. It's not easy, and I'm not doing it to brag, to show what it costs me to produce a bushel of corn, a bushel of wheat, a pound of beef. In saying that, my cost to produce those items are much less than the conventional model, okay? So if Gabe Brown decided to sell his corn, for instance, on the commodity market, my proven long-term cost to produce a bushel of corn is $1.44. 
all in, including land costs, fertility, everything. Who else can get it that low? Not very many people, right? So if I have to sell in the commodity market at even $3 a bushel, I'm still doubling my money. Now, I'm enough of a capitalist that if someone wants to pay me eight or 10, I'm gonna take it. I'm not a fool, right? However, as more and more people get into the regenerative space, I really believe those prices will moderate and come down. Nothing wrong with that. That's just the way it works, right? Yeah, that's we, we, that's enterprise. great at doing uh, everything yeah. we can to drive the price down. So, and that'll <laughs> exactly. happen over time, but we'll get more efficient at growing it too in a regenerative way. Yep. That's just the nature nature of the beast. Uh, other naysayers, you probably get some things about, uh, oh, cows and emissions and how can you be saying that? And grass-fed beef emits more methane than grain-fed, which is funded by your Farm Bureau. Uh, and, and all these kind of things, um, you know, you are just killing the planet by what you're doing. Okay. You do such a thing. Yeah. Shame on me. So let's, let's think of North America. Okay. So we all know history lessons that North America, there was bison grazing all the lower 48 States plus some in Alaska. And along with that, there was herds of elk and deer and bighorn and pronghorn antelope, et cetera. But the wild well, ones don't belch. They don't belch. Oh, they don't. Like, didn't you know that? No, that's news to me. Now you threw a curve at me. <laughs> but yeah, so what I'm getting at is obviously there was, there was more grazing ruminants on North American continent pre-European settlement than there are now in cows, beef cows, dairy cows, okay? If it was a problem, if this methane, the belching of ruminants is an issue now, why wasn't it an issue back then? Because what you don't hear is nobody's talking about methanotrophs. Methanotrophs are naturally occurring bacteria that consume methane. They're on the surface of the soil, and when animals are grazing, they belch, those methanotrophs consume that methane. The other thing is, if you really look at how these studies are done, saying that, that, that there is less being produced in a grain-fed system, they're not looking at the entire production model. How much fossil fuel does it take to produce that bushel of grain, to haul it to the animal, to, to the feedlot, to process it, to feed it, to haul out the manure, etc.? It's not looking at the whole system, you know. There's no comparison. The other thing we always hear is, well, if we go to this type of system, it's going to tie up too many acres of land. Do you know that we would not have to convert a single cropland acre in the United States to move to a totally grass-finished program? There is so many of these acres on farms and ranches that are not being utilized. They're CRP acres, which don't even get me started on that program, you know, that are, are just being wasted. Or just on pasture ground where we're not doing managed grazing. Exactly. Uh, and that we could double stocking rates. Oh, exactly. We could do a much better job. We could heal the deserts of the Southwest, get them back to the vast grasslands they once were, if we put animals back out on the land and manage them appropriately. Well, okay. Other naysayers, um, 
you know, cost of production, we, you know, we talked about that a little bit as far as, yeah, less, less inputs required, uh, you know, lowers that even though we do have a little less on the yield that does balance out. What are some of the other, oh, the effects of, um, um, yeah, we talked about the methane and, and those kind of things and how cattle you know, actually sequester carbon. What are other naysayers that you, that you hear a lot? Well, the naysayer, you know, that we're hearing lately, carbon is everybody's darling. And, oh, it's not true that uh, adaptive grazing will sequester more carbon. Okay. Well, work being done by Peter Bick and Stephen Applebaum's team has shown that we're sequestering in an adaptive grazing, multi-paddock grazing system, we're sequestering more carbon and more carbon to depth. We're taking that carbon deeper into the soil profile. That is one that uh, on nearly daily, I have to, and the team has to answer to, because as farmers are being enticed to uh, sign up for these carbon programs, uh, their management's going to come into play, and it's going to be important that they use these regenerative practices if they do take part in such a program. So I've got a naysayer one for, for you, um, me personally. One of the things I see is that, you know, the margin is there on the grass-fed business and those kind of things, but the the costs involved and the overheads, you know, from freezers, labor, people like that, if, if you're doing this as a business instead of as you as an individual, there's a lot of costs you have to absorb into that extra margin that you're that you're selling for um you know where in my area or probably for most people it's pretty hard to to sell the animals into a wholesale type of chain or what i mean the auction barn mm -hmm. so you know really the correct the direct marketing business is becoming a rather than it being standalone where I'd go be like a thousand Hills or some other, you know, national marketing program, go and buy an animal, process it and direct market it myself. I, I'm taking the lack uh, the profitability hit, uh, you know, with our, our higher land costs and that kind of thing to do it for soil health improvement. Uh, the margin that this company is making is having to supplement the profitability shortcomings we have. Uh, on here, they can't be standalone. It, it's been very tough for us to have a standalone business to do the health. So how are we approaching this wrong? How are we maybe thinking of this wrong? But it is mm -hmm. frustrating that we can't have an, an animal enterprise without the direct marketing component because the direct marketing has to supplement the uh, versus being a being two separate enterprises. Yeah. And in your case, I, I think it it comes down to that farm program and the inflated rate of land values. Right. You know, those farm land program. value. Yep. Adds, adds to the cost of the land. Yep. Do you know, I just listened to a, there's a large um, auction company that has a radio program every week. And they said here in North Dakota, in the past 12 months, land prices have agricultural land prices. 50 to 100% increase in one year, in one year, okay? And that's driven in large part by the large payouts that farmers have received, you know, in these past two years. I would yeah. say locally, we've increased probably 25% in the last 12 to 18 months. 
Yeah. Isn't that just crazy? So getting back to your question there is I would question then if that's the right context for your environment. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can, you can advance soil health significantly by integrating animals, but is it the right animals and what type of scale do you need? My you thoughts know? are, is I need to get rid of the cow herd. I need to go to finishers. I need to bring them in and have, you know, no overwintering costs yep. and, and those kind of things and really, really hammer down on, on, on that. But, uh, and I would say Monty, that makes perfect sense because you're producing way too high a quality forage to be running a cow herd. Correct. You just and, are. And we don't have the pasture land uh, to exactly. run a cow herd on. So yeah, uh, exactly. It needs to be the finishers and, and go from there. Yep. But I think that's one thing that really needs to be looked at is, you know, there's a lot of extra effort, work, talent, and skill and people and assets involved in that direct marketing business that is really required in order to make the overall holistic version mm -hmm. work. But mm -hmm. most people aren't willing to go to that extra step. And like you said, the livestock integration is critical. Uh, it, it makes such a difference. Well, We've seen yeah. tremendous turnarounds in our soil because of it. But yeah. I also need to cost adjust the gains that we're getting in subsequent years after a couple of regen years of cattle back against that enterprise, right? Correct. You so, are correct. Uh, it, uh, it, you got to look at a long-term horizon uh, on, mm -hmm. on those kind of things. Um, okay. Heck with the naysayers. We don't want to listen to them anyway. Look, let's, let's talk about the future. Uh, well, before we get there, one of the things, and you, uh, and I've listened to you several times and you've only shared it maybe once or twice. And for me as a farmer, it was really important. Uh, and I think more farmers need to hear this too. Your story about how you and Shelly divide, decided to, um, mm -hmm. uh, work out your trusts and uh, inheritance mm -hmm. between, uh, Paul and your daughter. Um, and how how even isn't fair and mm -hmm. uh, fair fair isn't even um, mm -hmm. share that and I think there's a lot of wisdom there and for all the farmers that are listening here I want you to pay attention to this because I think too often we hit the easy button that if we have let's say three kids and one's operating and two are in town we just divide it in third and and you've just killed your legacy mm -hmm. um, and and it it's especially maybe the farmers' wives need to hear this too because they'd be more inclined to be on the even is fair uh, approach. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've set it up there a little bit, but I want you to yep. dive into what you and Shelly and the kids all talked about and how that worked out. Sure, and it goes back to the our own situation. So my wife Shelly has two sisters. There was three girls, three daughters in the family. Well. Um, when we were in college, married, uh, my in-laws called us and asked us if we'd be interested in moving back to the farm when we finished college and taking over. My wife was not too excited about it. I was extremely excited about it. You know, it's something I always dreamt of. So we did that. We moved back to the farm in 1983. And for eight years, we assumed that because they had invited us back, that we would have the opportunity to purchase the farm from them when they retired. Well, what happened was, you know, I had an off-farm job, Shelly did, plus I was running all the livestock on the farm, the beef cattle, 
And then I was helping every spare hour. I was working free for my in-laws just to, to help them out and to learn. You know, they were teaching me. Well, this went on for about six years. I started renting a little land on my own, farming on my own. Then all of a sudden, one day, our in-laws, my in-laws had called the three daughters in and the son-in-laws weren't invited and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell each daughter a third of the farm. Okay. Now, to their credit, they did allow Shelly and I to buy the home place which we were living in a trailer house on the place at the time. Well, that totally came out of the blue. We were not expecting that. And quite frankly, it 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 was a bit devastating to us because it, it, they had never given any indication that they were going to do that. So what could we say? Okay. So we were to buy from them the home place. The sister-in-law's, the rent that I was giving them made their payments plus some. So in other words, we ended up buying the whole farm, but only having ownership of a third. Well, because of that, we have two children. Uh, Paul has an older sister, Kelly. And Kelly is not interested in farming. She's married, has children, and, and lives in Fargo. They got a life of their own. Well... We knew from when Paul was young, he had want to come back to the place. But we made the decision that it didn't matter if one of them came back or both of them, we were going to make it conducive for both of them if they wanted to. So we sat down with both Kelly and Paul and said, here's what we plan on doing. Kelly, do you have an interest in owning the farm? No, she said she didn't. But she would be supportive. Well, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the land in a trust. Paul is both the beneficiary of the trust and the executor of that trust. My wife and I have a life estate in that trust, which means we're entitled to the income from the property for as long as we live. And then when we pass, the entire farm ranch becomes Paul's. What we did for our daughter is she gets our life insurance any of our other assets, and we have some other investment assets, that's hers, okay? And as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, we're building a house. That house, it's not on the farm. It will be hers, okay? Is it equal? No. The ranch is worth much, much more than our investments in that. But is it fair? Absolutely, because Paul spent all his adult life working on this farm or ranch. Plus, we wanted him to know from the minute he moved back to the ranch out of college that this would be his. And that's what he was working for. Now, because of, you know, understanding ag and our investments we have, we do not take any income off the ranch. We have transferred all that. So it's Paul's. But uh, that's an option that we're fortunate enough that that uh, uh, we're in the financial situation where we don't need that income. But if we did, Paul would be paying us rent. But then he'd know that he'd have the land once we pass. So when you divide it up, typical people would divide it up, you know, 50-50. Now you've almost, you know, you've really challenged the farmer because they require that asset base, you know, to, to farm. 
right? And mm -hmm. uh, you you got to have those acres and and you know in your your situation where all of a sudden you go from no rent to have to rent mm -hmm. half your ground from your sister, mm -hmm. that that makes it very challenging for that farming enterprise to continue on. And it, it does that, that by doing what you did, uh, you're assuring that the farming enterprise, it just so happens to be Paul. Now, if, you know, if your if your daughter wanted to do it, you would yep. have done the same thing or you, same thing. you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter there. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing was, is you mentioned there, it was out of the blue that the, the meeting came in with the yep. three daughters yep. where you, uh, you guys have been talking about this, I think you said, since Paul was in college. Yeah, we, we actually started talking about it when Paul was in high school. We were pretty sure he was going to be a rancher. That's all he ever knew. That's all he wanted to do. Paul begged me not to make him go to college because he said, Dad, they're just going to teach me the wrong stuff anyway. You know, and but he needed to get away from home for a while. And so looking back, I wish I would have had him do internships on regenerative or holistic farms and ranches instead of going to college you know he got three college degrees graduated with honors but uh, i can't say he's used a lot of that a lot of that information here on on our farmer ranch but it's a good experience to get away but you have to start when they're young you know interestingly enough monty so paul growing up farm kid very active in ffa there was about 50 kids in the local ffa chapter when Paul was in high school. Today, he is the only one that's actively farming and ranching. And I put that directly on the parents. They did not make it conducive. Now, a child can do what they want, but you can't tell me that some of those 50 wouldn't have wanted to farm and ranch. See, those parents did not make it conducive. I remember when Paul was 10 years old, he had his own hog enterprise, you know, and I made him pay for everything. He learned business. You have to make it conducive to them so that they can realize there is a real opportunity in farming and ranching. And I think the, the two takeaways here for everybody listening, communication, right? You got to have it early and often and, and starting with him when he was in high school, that's a big deal. And, and you're prepping them and, and help them think like an owner, not just a, not just a farm hand. There's too many people I see today that, dad dies and you have a 60 year old farmhand that, that doesn't know yeah. how to make decisions or, or keep, keep the legacy going. Yeah. So have the communication. The, the second thing is, is remember fair and even are not the same and are rarely ever the same. Unless yeah. and you would have two kids that had zero interest in farming. Realize when Paul graduated college and came back, uh, it wasn't like I had a pile of money in the bank back then. We were still making some payments, you know, doing some things. So Paul helped build this operation. I give Paul all the credit, 100% for the direct marketing part of the business. But we set that up when Paul wanted to start a direct marketing business. We gave him our blessing and we gave him $10,000 to start it with. But that was 40% ownership in the business. We purposely gave him 60%. So he would be the decision maker. Because I think as parents, part of our responsibility is to teach our children how to be fiscally responsible. So Paul was running a business from right out of college that he had to, he could not borrow money. 
That's a stipulation I put on. He had to grow with his profits. So he took those profits and built it into the nourished by nature business it is today. Fantastic. I think that was a great, great lesson. And uh, everybody listening, guess what? You're going to die. And you need to have a plan for what that is. We have multi-generational farms. And if you want them to stay that way, you need to have a plan to do it and do it right and, and be teaching along the way, not just all the surprise you're dead. Oh, you inherited it. You have to know what to do with it. So yeah, real, real key. Uh, great, great job mentoring there. And uh, it's going to be fun to see what his, what your next generation comes up. That, with. that That's right. I got to tell a quick story here, Monty. So I have a good friend um, near my age who, uh, he's the child who came back to the ranch, okay? Spent 25 plus years on the ranch working with his parents, building the operation. One day, dad walks outside, falls down, hits his head, kills him, okay? Now he's fighting his siblings for that ranch, you know? And it's going to end up where he has to buy them out. You know, shame on the parents for not, having that communication that you talked about. Shame on them for not having a plan. Because this gentleman, when he passed away, he was in his he was in his upper 60s. You know, that's just wrong. That's so wrong. That's not fair to anybody. You know, needs to be addressed much earlier. I agree. Well, uh, let's wrap up here with the, with the future and where you see things going. Um, I think we can have a lot of fun here. Um, you know, what are, you know, Aggie Merge, I started this because after, after I had met you and realized that, man, there's a new way to farm and it needs to happen. And then I was doing some angel investing, in a lot of ag tech companies. And I'm, and I'm like, boy, there's, there's a lot of emerging technology here that is addressing the conventional market, but it's not focusing on regenerative. And what if ag technology companies would focus on changing how agriculture is done instead of just making conventional a little bit better. And uh, that's what Ag Emerge was. Like, I don't know how this is going to happen. Let's just throw everybody together in a, in a conference, in a podcast, in a community to, to learn from each other and figure out how this is, how this is all going to happen. What do you see, Gabe, emerging technologies and, and their impact on regenerative ag and getting ag technology companies to focus on regenerative and i think it's becoming a thing yeah well first monty hats off to you you know i'm glad i had the foresight to tell you that you were going to take this and run with it and now here you are 100 episodes later and making a real difference you know you you truly are and the near future i think technologies are going to develop we're going to know more five years from now, multiples more than we've learned in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's happening extremely rapidly. The most exciting to me is what we had mentioned, the work of Dr. Van Vliet, Provenza, and Kronberg, what they're doing with phytonutrient compounds and how you truly need healthy soils to produce food that has the ability to feed our gut microbiome and keep us healthy. I think that is going to be key to farm and ranch profitability and the ability of farmers and ranchers to earn what their goods are truly worth. 
Okay. I look at that as one. Another one I see uh, on the horizon is I think farmers and ranchers are going to be in the driver's seat for driving ecological health. And by that, I mean, we do so many other things as farmers and ranchers, clean air, clean water, you know, quantity of water that can be infiltrated, flood mitigation, keeping nutrients on our landscape, biodiversity, which is just huge. You know, I mentioned that I was just over in the UK. One of the things that struck us over there was the lack of insects. I mean, you just don't see many insects. They've lost their insect biodiversity. Well, as any of us know, if we lose insect biodiversity, the world ceases to function. You know, we can't pollinate our crops and, you know, there's not the predators to take care of the pests, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think farmers are going to be paid for that. As a matter of fact, uh, Understanding Ag was hired by the, the British government to help them in designing their next farm program. And we provided input as to the all these ancillary benefits. Because in the UK right now, their next farm program, you're not going to be paid based on yield. You're going to be paid based on outcomes. So how much water are you infiltrating? How much are you storing on your land? How clean is it when it's coming off your land? How much carbon are you putting back in the cycle? How much biodiversity do you have on your farm or ranch? That's how farmers and ranchers are going to be paid. What if that comes to the United States, which I think it will, and I think it'll come sooner than we think, okay? Because all this comes together. At Understanding Ag, we've trademarked the phrase, common ground for common good. I really believe as humans, we can agree on 85 plus percent of the things. Why can't we come together to work on those for the betterment of all? You know, I spend a majority of my time talking to non-farmers and ranchers. So I have to talk to them from the standpoint of where does your interest lie? Is it, are you interested in climate change? Okay, I can talk to you about how regenerative ag can take that carbon out of the atmosphere, put it back into the soil cycle. Are you interested in clean water? I can talk to you about how we grow cover crops to keep the nutrients immobilized on the land, then we'll mineralize it next year when the when the crop needs it. See, we can come together for common good, even though they might have a different interest. Regenerative agriculture can and needs to be a major part of the solution. I agree wholeheartedly because there, there's many on-ramps, you know, clean water, clean air, uh, animal welfare, uh, long, you know, legacy, mm -hmm. community, rural impact, um, just, just, it, it's human health, what, what human health, it's amazing what it addresses. So let's think a little bit about legacy. Um, what do you hope people will say about Gabe Brown and your impact you've made seven generations from now? Uh, frankly, Monty, I could care less. The only thing I hope is that that they realized that all I really wanted to do was help others. You know, all I really care about is that future generations have an opportunity to be sustainable. We don't have that opportunity. We have to be regenerative. I just hope that we're able to move the needle and future generations then can make a living off the land like I'm doing today. 
we have a narrow window to regenerate before we, we can before we can get the, to a point where we hope to maintain sustainability. That's an interesting thing. And I know you don't care what people say, but you certainly do care about about what people are able to do in the future, right? Uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely. the main reason why you're you're doing what you do. Uh, absolutely. Well, the biggest thing is we can't change the way we farm until we change the way we think. And uh, I hope you listening today have heard that uh, Gabe had to change his thinking to change his farming. And now he's doing everything he can, full court press, whether it's through farmers or governments or through groups, films, documentaries, everything. He, you, you've got the skinny pedal smashed to the floor as hard as you can, uh, you know, helping people change the way they think so that they change the way they farm uh, for generations to come. And uh, I appreciate getting to know you over these years and I appreciate the mission that you and your entire team are on and, and everything that you've done. Uh, you've done some amazing things for, for agriculture that are going to have some really lasting changes. So uh, Gabe, I can't thank you enough. Uh, thank you for what you've done for me as an individual, a farmer, a consultant with other uh, farmers out there and helping to, helping to change the ag paradigm. Uh, you're, you're a true leader and uh, uh, we can't thank you enough. Well, thank you, Monty, and thanks to you and Robin and Kim and all you're doing. You know, regenerative ag is a community, and like we talked about earlier, it's a community that is a real joy to be a part of, and we're all in this together, and we're all just trying to do our own part. So thanks for all you've done and are doing. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening today. I hope you've uh, taken away some new things from Gabe. I hope he's challenged your thinking I hope you uh, uh, take some of the things that he's talking about from production to uh, the future to even how to set up your your legacy with your family farm and, and do something with it. Don't just listen and be idle. Get to work. Uh, do the right thing. Do the next right thing. And, and don't be afraid to do it. So thanks again, Gabe. You have a you have a wonderful day and we appreciate everything that uh, that you're doing for agriculture. Thank you, Mom. Take care. Thanks for listening to this conversation today. That was a powerhouse of topics. No sugarcoating here as Gabe and Monty took an in-depth look at all things regenerative. We're so glad we could share this conversation with you, and we'd love for you to share this and all of our podcasts with your friends and fellow farmers as we continue to build this community, sharing lessons learned, new ideas, and sometimes tough conversations. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm and there you can click on links to follow us on facebook twitter instagram linkedin and youtube there's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn thanks for listening